He is a Denver native born of Denver natives. A former Denver chief deputy district attorney, he is now an active Colorado trial lawyer. Bright, independent, and full of fun, he has been part of the media for decades. This is The Craig Silverman Show. What a world, what a life, what a day. It's Saturday, January 14, 2023. Taping on Friday the 13th. I hope you are not superstitious, Troubadour Dave Gunders, are you? Friday the 13th's always been lucky for me. What days are unlucky for you? There's no unlucky days, Craig. It's all good. Do you have any superstitions? Um... Let's see. Yeah, I guess I probably have superstitions, some little odd quirks, like most people do. Such as? You know, walking under a ladder, you know, seeing a black cat cross your trail. Like, it makes me think twice. Absolutely. I think you're more of a dog person, even though you have cats in your house. You don't let me near them, but here my dog can't stop chewing a bone in the background to celebrate your arrival. Every time Skylar rejoices What's up with that? How come my dog likes you so much? What's not to like? <laughs> and I love dogs, too. So I'm, I'm a big dog fan. I mean, you know, we know each other. I'm friends with your dog. He associates you with great walks, and so do I. I also associate you with providing fantastic songs for every episode of our show. And once again, episode 131 with our special guest, Paul Pazin. Kind of a law and order show with former Denver police chief. You have provided a song apropos for what's going on in America right now. And you performed it the other night. It's called Do What I Say. It's fantastic. Way to go. It's a honky-tonk hit. <laughs> well, perhaps honky-tonk. And tell me when it's a hit. You'll let me know. Well, you're the boss. Who would title a song, Do What I Say? A father. A I father. Know. It's a fatherly thing. Do I'm, what I say. Don't do what I do. Tell right? everybody why you picked it out for this week, though. It wasn't necessarily father-son, although there's an element of that. There's an element of the father-son, but uh, I thought just having recently been hearing about Biden's faux pas, and I do believe it's a faux pas, um, you know, with you know the classified documents in his garage, um, I happen to be a supporter, of a, a supporter of our president, and I believe that he wouldn't do anything that would hurt this country in any way. So, but nonetheless, do what I say, don't do what I do. In other words, he did something that now it sounds like uh, could cause him some grief. What's the plural of faux pas? Because they're finding these records all over the place. It's probably like And fo- he knew that he was in the soup at the time, he was talking shit about Donald Trump's classified records on 60 Minutes. Did he? So it looks bad. It so does. you know what that means? What? Foes paw. What are, you, what are you doing basketball when a guy is screwing up a little bit? Send him out. You mean like you, uh, you, you put time him in out? A sub. Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. Time All right. Out. So yeah. you, you were great. It's, let's give you a retirement ceremony. Let's short circuit all this stuff about Hunter. And I like Joe too. He's the Trump killer. God bless him for that. And I think he's got good instincts, but 
Did he grease his own pockets, family pockets, through government service? Did he get a little wealthy? Did his brother take advantage? I think Jim Biden. And then there's Hunter. You know, I got, I read books. This is a problem for me. Peter Schweitzer wrote a book called Clinton Cash. Made me think the Clintons were corrupt. And they probably were to a degree. I mean, it all pales in comparison to Donald Trump. Then Schweitzer wrote another book called Hidden Empires, and I thought it was pretty good because it was about nepotism and connections in America and how the Bidens, Hunter Biden, he named him way back when, along with John Kerry's stepson through Theresa Hines, they had all these businesses in China and Ukraine, and they were making a fortune. Plus, he took down Mitch McConnell and Elaine Chao for their Chinese shipping connections and how much money they were. So there he was going after some Republicans too. I now think he's a little bit of a Breitbart, Trumper, Peter Schweitzer, but facts are facts. And he documents these things. And so even if Trump is the worst person on earth and he certainly competes, it doesn't mean that Joe Biden is squeaky clean. You know what I'm saying? I know what you're saying. I mean, and I haven't, I don't, it, it's, I haven't read enough about it or heard uh, Biden's response on any of this stuff. Some of it relates to Ukraine, China, mm. two countries I just mentioned in connection with his son. I just wonder about that family. They don't want these kind of investigations. I don't want it for the good of our country. It's a kinky family. Look, when Bo Biden died, Hunter Biden, who was married, took up with his widow. And they were having a thing. I'm not judging, I guess, but I'm just saying this is not Mitt Romney's family. Do you know? Right, right. And, uh, right, very few are. Right, you know. exactly. Yeah, yeah. And who wants to have congressional investigations by these scumbags just doing Donald Trump's bidding? You're going to call me a cheater on the golf course? We saw you on number two in 1988. You, you kicked your ball you're the cheater, right? And yeah. and uh, that's what he's going to do. Instead of saying, hey, what I did. And in Mar-a-Lago, they said, give us the records. And he wouldn't give it back. Biden, when he, right now, they're saying it was an inadvertent finding. We called it on ourselves. It's like golf. We called our own penalty. We called in the National Archives. It was a mistake. And maybe it is, maybe it isn't. But the guy who would know is Joe Biden. And right now, his lawyers have told him to shut up, which is just never a good position for a president. No, right. especially one with Republicans sniping at his heels for anything, for any misstep. Now, here's the opportunity. What did I lay before you, my friend, as we began? So this is the gu gubernatorial um, inauguration that you just attended. Yes, Jared Polis. And how is that apropos? Because Joe Biden has faltered. When Jared Polis was on my podcast a few months ago, I said, here's what I foresee, Governor. You are going to win, and you will win big. The Republicans will do well. I thought they'd do better than they did. But still, Polis won by 20 points in Colorado. And now that Biden has faltered, this is a free run for Jared Polis. He's governor for the next four years, even if he takes a little time off to campaign. I think a governor has a chance, not a senator. They want somebody who's run 
a significant state like Colorado. Now, Colorado is generally well-regarded, but what's the Achilles heel right now in Colorado in terms of polis and the reputation? And by the way, you say, well, he'd be the first gay president, he'd be the first Jewish president, and his country ready for a gay president. Everybody thought it might be Pete Buttigieg, right? The transportation secretary, but my God, the traveling problems with the airports, that kind of put an anchor around any electoral plans of Pete, who ran, what, South Bend, Indiana, and now he's supposed to be running the Transportation Department. Polis served in Congress many terms, 10 years, I believe, and he was accomplished in private enterprise before that. Now he's two-term governor, elected by the biggest margin of all time. He may run for president. What did he say? Did you mention that? I said to him, I think you're going to run. And I think you're, and and he said, no, I'm focused on being governor. I'm going to try to pull that sound. But what's the Achilles heel of Colorado when America starts examining, well, how well did Jared Polis do? Oh, it would have to be a crime. Is that right? Yes. Mm -hmm. So he would be well advised to maybe get a Paul Payson on board of his campaign because Payson's a Denver native, and you will hear on the interview that he is not a progressive, but he's not a Trumper. He's on and off air. We talked about that. Gosh, he gave a great talk to Sam on her deck here. Sam had a better question than I ever thought to ask. He said, hey, you know, my generation, he's 20. They're kind of down on cops, but when we we go to the movies, Marvel superheroes, those guys are like Batman. They're on the side of trying to bring criminals to justice. So we root for that. Why don't we root for the cops and what's going on? And Payson was brilliant about that. And they talked about the show, The Wire, which I haven't watched, but Sam says I need to, and Paul Payson said so too. Okay. But he talked about uh, the regard for police being cyclical. And think about when you were growing up so long ago, well before my time, but the police didn't have a great reputation in the 60s. They called them the fuzz or even worse, the pigs. Well, before that, though, I remember reading just, you know, as a kid, right, reading the books with the, you know— the smiling police officer, right? Who who protected society? Yes. Yeah, they had a they had a, a, a you know a glowing image, right? Right, but it's cyclical. Image. Denver yeah. had his burglary scandal where cops were committing burglaries in the early sixties. That yeah. was a setback. L.A. with their police scandals. Oh yeah, right. Yeah, right. And like you say, the sixties and you know the the whole. Uh, the whole Chicago convention and the riots and right. everything like that. Right, the cops were bad. And the military, like how poorly regarded they were in the wake of Vietnam. And then public sentiment changes over time. We've seen this historically 100 years ago. Crime was so bad that people turned to the Klan for protection. And so we talk in this interview with Paul Payson how to get it back. Because he's a gung-ho cop and he's only 52. He retired after four years being police chief. 28 years on the job, five years Marine before that, and it's a heck of an interview. And your song's really a great song, but 
I went to the inaugural party and I thought of you, great musician you are. First of all, tell everybody about the gigs you're playing. And you played the song, Do What I Say, at one of your venues. And people get up, they dance their asses off to this song. Tell everybody about your recent gigs and where they might catch you. Well, we, we, I don't know where they're going to catch us next. We just played this last weekend. We were at Rockabilly's up north in, uh, in Lakewood. And then we were at uh, Lincoln's Roadhouse here in central Denver. Both fun places. Um, right now, we're looking for more gigs. So um, I can't tell. I'll let, I'll let your audience know as soon as we have another gig. I know, but that song, Do What I Say, everybody got up and danced to that, right? Yeah, they like, I mean, people like it. And I have had fathers especially come up and say, oh, I need the lyrics to that. It's it's Because it's about a father who obviously loves his son, who's just a little bit wild. And the father is worried. He's worried about him. Uh, At the end, the son takes off with the car and, you know, he's... He's worried about him crashing the car. And anyway, it's uh, do what I say, don't do what I do. Uh, rather, do do what I say, don't do what I do is is the father's way of saying, you know, be safe. Don't don't be like me. I was I was wild in it and uh, and I suffered for it. It's a fantastic song by a guy who has never had a son. Am I correct? Just Riley. Right. Your dog. <laughs> who you but call I can, son. But, yeah, but you yeah. used your imagination. Yes. Yeah, it's like me writing a song about a daughter Mm -hmm. and my relationship. Right. It's what O.J. Simpson said to me when I said, "O.J., I think if I would have prosecuted you, I'd have convicted you of double homicide." And he said, "Well, Silverman, that won't happen. So we'll never know whether that's true or not." It's sort of like me thinking about how I would be a father to a daughter. Well, that ain't ever going to happen. No. You and ne- you're probably you never, never going to have you're a not, son. You're not through yet. Well, I'm, I think I'm through. I think I'm through. And this introduction is almost through. But I need to talk about musicians. I saw at soon-to-be President Polis's second inauguration. I was supposed to go with Bob Marshall, state rep, subject of a beautiful episode not that long ago. He got stuck in traffic. It was at the Mission Ballroom. Right. And, oh, my God, what a venue. Have you been there? I have not. You guys should play it. So there's uh, King Polis. I mean, Jared Polis up there. And, you know, they have, like, opera seating. And then they have, you can dance. You can get to the side of the stage. I was never so close to major acts. They brought in pizza in the middle of it, which is nice to feed all those people pizza. There were big wigs, there were gay people, trans people, straight people, powerful people, people off the street. It was Colorado for All was the idea, but the musical entertainment. Who was it? Well, I, I was, was trying a, to remember them. Right. There's a couple of like Carly Rae Jepsen, who is hot. She's sexy and a little bit uh, too popular in country for you. And then there's a group called They Might Be Giants. Oh, yeah. Right. But good, here good was band. the killer act for me. Yeah. I've never been, I think, that close to a major star, and I didn't realize what a major star she was until one hit after another came out of her mouth, and she was pretty, she was energetic, and she's in, about our age, Belinda Carlisle from the Go-Go's. Oh, that's fantastic. Yeah. And you know- yeah, one of the, uh, the, Like one of the first- 
all all girl bands, right? Yes. Yeah. Yeah, they were hip. They were great. I Get Weak, Heaven on Earth. And right. then did you know she did a feature? It wasn't a big hit. It was called Leave a Light On, and it was the best slide guitar performance by a famous guitarist. If you can guess this one. Well, when I think of slide, I think of Ry Cooter or maybe Roy uh, Rogers. Um, okay, now I, these guys might not be known Taj as Mahal. the all-time greatest slide guitarist. Sonny this Landreth. guy was in the most famous band ever, and he could play some slide guitar. What's the most famous band ever? The Beatles or the okay, Stones? Okay, the Beatles. Okay. And who played guitar? Well, the, George Harrison yes. was the lead guitarist. He did some, he's, and he's a slide. He's yes. a slide guy. Yeah, and he said the greatest slide guitar performance he ever played was on Belinda Carlisle's hit "Leave a Light On." Oh. Although it wasn't that big of a hit, George but, Harrison played yes, on it. George Harrison played on it, oh, and she talked it about it as she introduced the song. It's Jared Polis inaugural. That's great, and I get to talk. Uh, about it with you and before we leave musicians i just want to yes. shout out to to jeff beck who we recently lost and um it, i was not on the news but my buddy one of the guys i work with mentioned it to me he he was one of the great guitar players of uh of my generation see tell me about jeff beck yeah. because uh he had a chance to be with some other bands but he was sort of uh oh, independent yeah. why was he so great I mean, his technical ability, when you think of, you know, Jeff Beck, he, he, was, a, he was technically amazing. He was fast uh, and, and, and just a gr great musician, you know, very tasteful on, on, his, on his instrument. Now, I know golf swings. I like professional golfers, and I could probably give you an imitation of the way certain golfers swing as opposed to others or by side. Uh, from behind, I could say, oh, that's Freddie Couples or that's Arnold Palmer. Could you do that with guitarists? Oh, I could hear a few notes out of Jeff Beck and know who it is. Yeah. What about he had visually? His own style. What about visually? Do you watch the hands and the, or is it all the sound? Oh, well, I mean, if you're at a concert and they zoom up on the hands, I always like seeing the hands. You know, Jeff Beck is a guitarist I could never even approach in terms of his 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 abilities. I mean, his his style. He was unto himself, really singular guy. You yeah. are a double black diamond guitarist. And that might not mean that you can win the Olympics, but you know what great guitar is like. And I appreciate you bringing up Jeff Beck. I appreciate you playing along on George Harrison. But most of all, I appreciate you, Troubadour, for the amazing song, Do What I Say. Give this to the father in your life. Say, it's a gift from Troubadour Dave Gunders. Shabbat Shalom on this Friday the 13th, my friend. Shabbat Shalom, Craig. Thanks. My son don't like it, not one little bit I tried to guide him, maybe give him a tip Things could be simple, but you see he's resigned To that reckless behavior, got an untracked mind Cause I learned a few things When I was away Gets a whole lot better Once you learn to act sane I save you to try
trouble of some big mistakes. He said, look in the mirror, Dad. <laughs> Give me a break. I said, do what I say. Don't do what I do. Do what I say. Do what I do. I guess everybody got to learn for themselves. Can't get no wisdom from nobody else. I try to think of something so he'll understand. He's already out that door with the keys in his hand. And over his shoulder underneath his breath. He says, don't ask me no questions, Dad. Anyway, you can guess. And while tell me true, I said, do what I say, don't you do what I do, do what I say. catch on fire? It wasn't that. You choked on that bite of burnt bacon. Why is everything all red? The heat is unbearable. Where am I? Excuse me, your dishonor. May I step in on behalf of my client? Mr. Silverman, proceed. Tell me one redeeming good thing your client did. He was a faithful listener to my radio show. Not good enough. He had decency and compassion for his family. He did end-of-life planning with Michael Bailey. The Michael Bailey? That is kind to your loved ones. That is smart and way too decent for this place. Your client can go. And what about me, your despicableness? Why should I? Michael Bailey is my lawyer, too. Go on, then. Get out of here. <laughs> now, part of that was serious, and part of that was fictional. But you will die someday, and if you don't make a legal plan, the government will make one for you. Call my lawyer, Michael Bailey. His rates are reasonable, and he can meet with you and your spouse wherever you want, and on weekends and evenings. 720-394-6887 or online at mblawllc.com. Now back to the Fred Silverman Show.
And being a lawyer is a matter of judgment. You have to know the law, the facts, but good judgment is essential. If you don't understand how Donald Trump is culpable for the crimes committed in his name, then I question your judgment. I have the good judgment to question Donald Trump. If you want a lawyer like that, instead of a knucklehead who believes in the MAGA propaganda, call Craig, 303-734-7156, 303-734-7156. I am Craig, Craig Silverman, a voice for victims. I am joined in studio by former Denver Police Chief Paul Pazin, and it's a great honor to have you here. Thanks for coming over. Craig, uh, thank you. Thanks for having me in this beautiful studio. I really appreciate it. Quite an honor. You and I have never had a chance to speak extensively, but I feel like we kind of crossed paths with me leaving the Denver DA's office, 1996, had to turn my badge in, but in 95, you became Denver Police Department recruit badge number 9527, is that right? That is correct. Uh, I And I remember the academy and uh, the great instruction that we got from the Denver DA's office, you, Lamar Sims, and uh, just an incredible team that uh, really uh, helped uh, build the relationship, the partnership, and, you know, the uh, the capabilities of the Denver Police Department uh, way back then, and, and that continued. I had a blast with that. I got assigned to teach in co-aid crime and how a police officer, a hero such as yourself, can maybe stop a crime before it happened and still hold the bad guy accountable. That's the dream scenario, right? And and it was a lot of fun. And I got to use the same jokes over and over, including about enforcing a noise ordinance uh, in West Denver in late June. If the Nuggets were in the playoffs, what would you do? And lucky you're smiling like you might even remember this, but I think the Nuggets might be in the championship in June this year. What about you? Oh, they're looking uh, really good. Uh, I don't know if you got to catch a little bit of the game last night. All of it. Oh, good. I I don't miss any of it. And and I'm going to confess to you, one, we're not in Denver. Two, I don't care. I stream it. I find a way to get it online. I have kids. I have friends. I'm going to watch my Nuggets. I, I grew up with them just like you did, right? Uh, through the good times and the bad times. And I can uh, think of some, some pretty bad years, some pretty exciting years. Uh, they are they have a window right now. I'm crossing my fingers that uh, that everything continues down this path because that is a great basketball team. Are you a big sports fan? Of course. Uh, Which sports? Uh, well, uh, football, uh, basketball, baseball, hockey. And certainly a, a fan of all of the, the Denver teams. Uh, Yo, put it there. We are natives. I mean, I wouldn't think of rooting for any other city, would you? No, uh, not at all. Uh, you have to support your team uh, through through thick and thin. And uh, we've had some, some great years last year with the Avalanche, uh, which is uh, special and uh, very uh, proud of what they've done. Very proud of uh, how that was handled in our city uh, as well, uh, because I think that went off uh, both uh, the the clinching of the Stanley Cup and, and the celebration uh, 
uh, that evening, and then even the parade. Uh, I think that's something that that uh, we as a city uh, could be very proud of the team and and how we responded as well. That was on your watch. We're going to get around to all of that, but let's just dive into the best parts of being chief of police. Because your background, you lived near District 1, you rose through the ranks, you got the top job. For example, I bet you were part of anything you wanted to be a part of with the AV celebration. What were the coolest things where you said, I can't believe I'm here? Uh, well, uh, a lot of uh, wonderful times for sure in, uh, in in that role as the police chief. Uh, you know, I am uh, a, a very proud Denver native. I was born at Denver General Hospital. I've only lived in the city and county of Denver uh, other than my five years in the Marine Corps. And the Marines uh, said, hey, sorry, we don't have a base in Denver and we're not going to put you there. Uh, so uh, I Because you love wanted to be back in the Mile High City? As, uh, yes. So uh, as I was transitioning out of the Marine Corps, I uh, applied for two jobs, the Denver Police Department and the Denver Fire Department. And back then, you used to take that test at Kurgan Hall. You'd stand uh, in line with uh, several thousand folks uh, took both tests, and I'm very thankful uh, to this day that uh, I, I did well on the police department test, and I've led a, a blessed career, and I've been very fortunate and very thankful uh, for the, the department and the women and men that continue to do this very difficult and dangerous work. Are you disrespecting the fire? Uh, no. Uh, Is there a rivalry there? Uh, well, uh, there there used to be a, a, a much uh, deeper rivalry in the past, and I, uh, I, I've i got good friends, uh, neighbors that were uh, on the Denver Fire Department department continue to be on the Denver Fire Department but uh, even in law enforcement there used to be more of a sense of rivalry between say the Denver Police Department and the Colorado State Patrol uh, the one good thing that we saw in 2020 uh, particularly around the challenges that we faced uh, after the murder of George Floyd was the bringing together of these different agencies the Denver Sheriff's Department the Denver Fire Department Colorado State Patrol Douglas County Sheriff's, Arapahoe County Sheriff's, uh, departments from across the region, we had to really uh, come together and uh, address many of the, the challenges that we were facing. And I think that uh, it's important that we recognize that and that those agencies uh, see the value and continue it. Well, let's do talk about other agencies because they're in the news a lot. I remember when I was in the Denver DA's office, we considered our office the top prosecution office. We set the tone throughout the state. I would agree with that. I, I saw it firsthand. And then we looked at some other jurisdictions, uh, you know, Alex Hunter's time in Boulder, and uh, they never go to trial. They don't really enforce the law, mm. although they didn't have a huge crime problem. At the same time, we're going to get around to you telling us how to solve crime in Denver. But uh, how do you regard uh, police departments around? Is Aurora in trouble? I mean, uh, do, do you say, wow, some of the things that have gone on as we tape, they just promoted a guy who was caught drunk as a skunk in his uh, patrol car, got away with that, um, I mean, is Aurora in trouble, or do you not like to talk about other people? I mean, I talk about Alex Hunter, but maybe you're more 
smart than that. <laughs> well, uh, I, I, I certainly wouldn't uh, do that. I, I do try to talk on uh, subjects that I know uh, about, that I can uh, demonstrate or, or prove what I say. I am not uh, as familiar with the Aurora Police Department as I am with the Denver. That's a good answer. And But I will say that uh, their chief uh, is, uh, is really good. Uh, the new interim chief is somebody that I know personally it's somebody that what's his name again um uh, of of course uh i i can't think of it but i know he was on alex jones which gives me pause uh really yeah when he was art uh, Art, Art uh, acevedo art acevedo right he he Uh, he went on the you know well what i will say about art is uh he doesn't shy away from any questions he doesn't shy away from anything and uh i think that he has a proven track record that uh, that can help, and I don't know what the long term uh, answer is uh, for that particular department. But uh, Art Acevedo is somebody that uh, has a deep understanding of, of law enforcement uh, that will uh, get uh, in at the ground level and and try to get things uh, figured out. So uh, my hope is uh, for the you know the entire state of Colorado that uh, we have uh, the professional law enforcement. From, from top to bottom, across the entire state, because it's uh, beneficial for all of us. And you are such a professional law enforcer. You took retirement in October of last year. You served with distinction for 28 years. And uh, let's talk about your public service. Um, how far back do you go in the Denver area? And tell us about your grandma, Lola Trujillo. Well, uh, well, thank you. Thanks for uh, giving me uh, this uh, this privilege to talk about really what has shaped uh, not only uh, my life but uh, our, you know our family tree, and uh, it goes back to my grandmother and grandfather, uh, Joe and Lola Madrid, moving up uh, from northern New Mexico to work at the Gates Rubber Plant. And uh, like men, many families do, there was a, a little bit of a fracture there. And uh, Grandpa went back down south, and Grandma stayed here. Uh, she uh, raised two uh, young ladies, my mother and my uh, Aunt Sandy, in public housing uh, in the Lincoln Park projects. And, uh, you know, I was uh, essentially raised by a, a single mom, my mother. Um, but the values that my grandmother, Lola, instilled not only in my mother, not only in my uh, aunt and uncles, uh, but all the cousins, is that of giving back. Now, uh, easily, uh, when, you know, when, when my grandmother needed some help, uh, she took it. But uh, as soon as she was uh, back on her feet, all she did was give back. And uh, till the day she died, she was uh, serving other people, senior citizens and, and other folks, trying to make a positive impact uh, on her community. And that's something that uh, my mother, my uncles, my cousins, uh, I have cousins who are uh, judges uh, twice, three times reelected, uh, New Mexico State Police, teachers, coaches, uh, everything that you can think of, of, of giving back. So um, when I talk about uh, joining the Marines and applying for two jobs, Denver Police, Denver Fire, uh, that's kind of the family business is, uh, is giving back to your community. And uh, it traces back uh, in many ways, uh, both to my, my grandma Lola, 
uh, who who did it, and then uh, on on the other side of the family, uh, my grandmother um, did the same thing, uh, Patricia uh, Boone. So um, it it's just uh, what we do. I was essentially raised by my two grandmothers and my mom, and uh, very proud of that. And I think that uh, they equipped me quite well to to deal with uh, many of the the challenges that we face. How did your ancestors feel about Denver? Well, um, you know, I'm I'm so uh, proud and and appreciative uh, to to be raised here. I believe in this city, and and I'm, you know, the, the city has a lot to be proud of. Now, there's good times and bad times. There's uh, times where our city has seen great success, and there's times that our city has seen great challenges. And there was a time when. You know, 100 plus years ago when the railroad was going to skip us and the people of Denver came together and said, wait, uh, that would mean uh, disaster and uh, for us. And so they uh, pitched in and came up with solutions. And, and I think that that's the spirit of the people of Denver, that uh, even though we are in a less than desirable place right now with uh, some of the crime uh, challenges that we uh, that we face, uh, some of the socioeconomic challenges that we face, that uh, uh, hopefully, we will be able to come together. Uh, common sense will prevail, and we'll say, "Wait, uh, we need to focus on the common good. We need to uh, lift all boats and and uh, you know stop separating people and only uh, trying to serve small segments uh, of the population. That it's about uh, the entire city and doing what's best for everyone." And before we dive in, let's talk about Denver, okay? As it is now. You're only 52 years old. Is this the place you want to make your contribution? Is this, uh, are you dedicated to Denver as you were when you were Denver Police Chief? Oh, absolutely. Uh, you know, I, I want to see Denver be successful. I want to see the state of Colorado be successful. And, you know, as I traveled here to uh, this gorgeous uh, studio, I traveled through many different jurisdictions, right? I live in Denver. And even when I would drive from my house to uh, police headquarters, I would travel through five different jurisdictions. So that's one aspect where we have to realize that uh, we're interconnected, whether we live, work, or play in Denver, in the metro area, or uh, in the, the entire state, that uh, these policy decisions, they matter. And we have to do uh, what's good uh, for everybody. And uh, sometimes we do things that, that feel good, but we have to hit the pause button, look at the data, look at the evidence, look at the research and say, wait, although we made this change because we were uh, trying to, to do some good, um, we may need to reverse course. We may need to, to change some things because it's having some negative outcomes. And uh, we have to do that not only in Denver, but uh, throughout the state of Colorado. I recently had on longtime Denver DA Mitch Morrissey. I asked if he was going to run for mayor. He said, Craig, I moved just out of Denver. He moved in, into his mother-in-law's old house, as I recall. Here we are, just a little bit out of Denver. You live in Denver, I so do. you qualify. Are you going to run for mayor? Uh, great question, and uh, this is something that's been a, a long-time dream uh, of mine to uh, to help uplift this city. But uh, at, at some point, uh, you have to do what's best for your family, and running for mayor at this time uh, would not be a good thing for my family, and uh, I am not 
running, uh, and uh, I'm hopeful that I can make a positive contribution because uh, I, like many people that live uh, in in Denver or work in Denver or go to the the Nuggets games uh, in Denver, uh, have concerns, and and we need to address uh, those concerns in order to uh, provide the the vibrant city that we all grew up in and, and loved. Have you decided to support anybody who is running for mayor or city council for that part? Um, at, at, at this time, no. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm really hopeful that uh, a good, strong candidate that uh, can strike the right balance, uh, because uh, I believe that uh, balance is key to this. Uh, oftentimes, any uh, chance that we, uh, as a society, when we overcorrect, when we swing one direction or the other, typically that has bad results. And uh, I think that uh, we need uh, folks that uh, are, are more uh, in the middle, like the populace is, uh, that doesn't uh, jump on to uh, some of these uh, extreme ideas and and is able to manage uh, the common good, the what's best, what's in the best interest for the people of Denver. And I'm hopeful that uh, a good, strong candidate will emerge. And haven't quite seen that yet. I've seen the pendulum swing. I've been around so long. When I started in the DA's office, 1980, and then I was. Uh, a chief deputy during the summer of violence, 1993. Were you in the Marines then? Were you overseas? I was in the Marines, uh, and I, I've done a couple of tours uh, overseas. I was part of the first Gulf War, so uh, if you ever have a choice to go to war, the Gulf War was the, the one because we were back in about five months. Um, and I've also uh, done a tour in, in Japan uh, and then all over uh, the country and beyond in, in many deployments as well. So during that time, I was actually in the Marine Corps. I know back in those violent days, we had upwards of 100 murders, sometimes more in a year. And recently, didn't that terrible century mark get breached again? Or do you know? We we just under uh, 100 in, in both 2020 and, and okay. 2021. Uh, we had 96 and 97, uh, respectively, in, in those two years. So... Uh, that the, the high water mark is actually back in the 80s. Right. So I was uh, there then too. <laughs> as as a right. as a very young, uh, a young prosecutor, very young. Yes. He started out of out of high no, school. No, but but there and I think the stats bear you out that some violent crimes aren't that bad, and they've gone up in Colorado, not so much in Denver. But there is a crime problem. Can we agree? Is there a big crime problem in Denver, A, and B, Colorado? Uh, The answer is there is a big crime problem in the state of Colorado. Last year, the state of Colorado recorded more murders than in our state's history. Uh, Yes, Denver uh, didn't quite eclipse uh, its high water mark. But when you hear of three murders in one month in places like Loveland, when you have shootings up in Boulder, when Castle Rock has uh, a murder a couple of months ago, and Littleton and and places beyond, when Pueblo has uh, twice the amount of of murders that they average, when Colorado Springs is hitting some high water marks, you have to take a look at the big 
picture. And Colorado, five and 10 years ago, was a remarkably safe state. We, uh, both in property crimes and in violent crime, were well below the national average. And uh, then, uh, uh, you know, from my perspective, we made some significant policy changes and we eclipsed uh, the national average. In what in- year? What, what accounts for it? There's uh, some specific legislation that that I believe uh, is driving these issues uh, historically. Well, um, auto theft, uh, for example, and uh, the first piece of legislation that I think has made a dramatic impact on uh, the state with regards to auto theft, because historically for years and years and years, we were at or below the national average for auto theft. And now we are number one in the country. Uh, There was some legislation in 2014, 14, 12, 66 that uh, passed. It changed the value of uh, value-based prosecution. And so if Paul stole a uh, very expensive car, then I was held to a higher account than if I steal a single mom's car who's just trying to make ends meet. And then uh, we doubled down on these types of legislation. Uh, We passed uh, uh, Senate Bill uh, 271 that then uh, those low-level or those inexpensive cars are misdemeanors. So before this legislation, if Paul stole a car, I was looking at an F4 felony. And as you know, uh, 97% of all cases are pled. And so if I'm walking in the door on an F4, I'm likely pleading down to an F6 uh, on this. There's still some level of of accountability. Mm -hmm. But after that initial legislation, it was changed to expensive cars are F5s, poor people cars are F6s. It's further been eroded where those uh, poor people cars are M1s. Now, if if I'm walking in the door on an M1, what what type type of accountability as a, as a former prosecutor am I facing? You are making strong points, but uh, most property crimes are delineated by the amount uh, in question. To steal a million dollar diamond is different than stealing a Snickers bar. Correct. And um, Can, well, criminal well, mischief, talk- right? But I, I I agree. I mean, on a policy argument basis. Anybody getting their car stolen, whether it's a clunker or a Bentley, it's a horrible event, and that person should go to jail. You also have a lot of uh, liberal judges, right? Mm -hmm. Let's be honest about that. Liberal prosecutors. Mm -hmm. So there are many levels of accountability here. We've had nothing but Democratic judges appointing public defenders. Yes. uh, Whereas prosecutors used to be more favored. I'm generalizing. But it all plays a role. One hundred percent. I couldn't agree with you more. Right. Because uh, oftentimes us as as human beings, we want to get to the simplest, simplest answer as quick as possible. Oh, it's this piece of legislation. It's this group of folks. It's a combination of all of this. It's a combination of. Uh, some state statute changes that have impacted us. Uh, as you said, uh, we need fair and impartial judges if we want to uh, uphold uh, a public safety where people are and feel safe in a community. Uh, you need prosecutors that are victim-centered, and um, you need police officers that uh, are knowledgeable, that are well-trained,
maintained and fully supported. And I believe that uh, this combination that we see ourselves in today with laws that don't make sense, with uh, judges that um, you know may not be as fair and and impartial as they were in the past, uh, based on on the rule of law, and with uh, you know in in some cases in in the second judicial district uh, where uh, the, the the prosecution may not be as victim centric as uh, I believe it should be to enhance public safety. Um, the the Denver Police Department, as you know, somebody that helped train uh, officers is, is well trained. The the standards for the academy. They get twice as many hours as the state of Colorado post uh, requires. Uh, when you're talking about annual training, three times the amount that uh, that post uh, requires. If you look at major cities across the country, the national average of uh, annual continuing education training is is 21 hours a year. The, Police department, Denver Police Department's at eighty. So uh, you want well-trained officers, but we also need support. And um, you know, based on on different circumstances, uh, some that that uh, may have happened in the city, some beyond. Uh, that support has definitely been eroded from your days in the Denver District Attorney's Here's Office. That's what I loved about prosecuting in Denver, especially when I got a little seniority. We had more than enough serious real crime. I didn't have to mess with little things. I wanted to get the really bad guys off the street, and I've studied your career, Chief. Not only did you become a Marine, and you still are a Marine, once a Marine, always a Marine, you took all the tough assignments. You wanted the action. You wanted to go to the high crime area. You wanted to go to SWAT. You wanted to make an impact on the people who are really hurting Denver, And to me, I think there are solutions, and that's where I would focus. Who are the really bad guys, and how can we get them the hell away from our citizens? Am I right? Isn't that part of law enforcement? 100%. I think you hit the nail on the head. That's exact. Our our goals are aligned, and I think the community goals are aligned when, uh, when we talk about these issues. We certainly want to take the worst of the worst off the street. If you have individuals who commit eight felony crimes in a 12-month period, that's a problem. When you have individuals that are involved in uh, five gun crimes and they're by law prohibited from owning or possessing a firearm— and you arrest them for shootings and possession and uh, drug cases and menacing kids, you want them held accountable. But when uh, it's a uh, arrest and released immediately for violent uh, and repeat offenders, that has a negative impact on public safety. And uh, we have to do a better job of, one, holding accountable the individuals who are causing the greatest amount of harm in our community and figuring out that balance. And yes, there are solutions. Yes, we've we've gone through this before. Uh, when you bring up the summer of violence in the 90s, our country went through a surge of violence in the mid-90s. And there's research out there. Uh, there's a seminal piece of, of research that Levitt did of what worked in the 90s and what didn't work in the 90s. And we make assumptions of, oh, well, it was X, Y, and Z that helped. His research shows 
all these things that we think made a difference really didn't. And here are the four things that do. And we have to learn from the past, figure out what strategies we can uh, do in a fair and just way that hold accountable the violent and repeat offenders and provide uh, mechanisms uh, to to keep our community safe, to rehabilitate uh, those, lo- those, those individuals that are in low-level crimes before it escalates. And there is a way to do this. We've gone through this before, and that's my hope is that we can stop making these uh, emotional decisions that feel good and uh, are and end up having a negative impact and look to the real solutions based on evidence and data and research that says, yes, this is what we need to do. These tough decisions on how we keep our community safe. Right at the beginning of that answer, you brought up guns. There was a culture in our Denver DA's office. One, there's mandatory sentence if you use a gun in a crime. And two, we didn't like guns. And part of the reaction, as I recall, to the summer of violence uh, were tougher laws and a crackdown on gun crimes. Denver, in reaction to, I think, the Allen Berg murder in the early 80s, passed an assault weapon ban. Mm-hmm. You've been a chief of police. I noticed politically there's often a difference between urban chiefs of police and rural sheriffs Weigh in on guns, uh, being a Marine, everything. I bet you have a lot of opinions. Well, I certainly do uh, with regards to, to guns and gun crime. And, and I think that's where we need to be specific, right? You certainly have folks that uh, were resistant to red flag laws, for example, to, uh, as you've indicated, uh, there was there was also some changes with regards to magazine capacity not that long uh, ago, assault weapons. What I think everybody in the state of Colorado, uh, red, blue, purple, can agree on is illegal guns, guns in the hands of violent offenders, guns in the hands of of kids, teenagers. Uh, Illegal guns are something that we can all agree should not be out on uh, our streets and committing uh, the harm that they are to uh, the people of Denver and the people of the state of Colorado. And for example, uh, last year, the Denver Police Department, the women and men of this Denver Police Department, uh, took more illegal guns off the street than any year in recorded history, 360 more on top of uh, the highest number ever recorded illegal guns taken off the street. How did they obtain them? Well, and you have to think of every single one of those instances that uh, a police officer is confronting a, a person uh, with a gun. Those are inherently dangerous position, uh, uh, positions to be in. Right. And uh, very proud uh, of the efforts uh, to, to successfully take that many guns off the street. However, right, we uh, it's long documented about hotspot policing, and and uh, we have uh, five areas in Denver that uh, make up 1.56% of the land mass, but they account for 26% of the murders and 49% of all of the shootings. So uh, in those five hotspots, one in particular, uh, the lower downtown Denver area, I took a look. Uh, what is happening when we arrest these people uh, with guns? Probation probation, probation, probation. So if there is not accountability for illegal guns in violent hotspots, 
what is wrong with the system. And so that is why we partnered uh, with the ATF. We partnered with the U.S. Attorney's Office because we were seeing a lack of prosecution for individuals by law prohibited from uh, owning, possessing a firearm, doing it in the heart of our city, in an area that we designated as uh, a violent uh, gun crime area and getting uh, a lack of of support further down the criminal justice uh, system. You're a calm guy, but you got a little worked up there. And I imagine the people who patrol Lodo have these feelings, and one of them just got indicted by a grand jury. There was an unfortunate shooting where... Officers felt like somebody had a weapon. I, it turns out, I think that he threw it away. But then the next instant, there was a shooting. Six people got shot, including uh, the guy who uh, the police were after. Uh, controversial issues. Some people think it led to your decision to leave. Is that any part of it at all? Uh, No, not uh, any part of my decision to leave. Uh, October 15th is a date that uh, my family and I had circled for at least uh, nine months to a year. Uh, This job is is impossible during normal circumstances. Mm -hmm. And uh, the last couple of years, uh, as we've seen, uh, it's made it even more difficult. All right, let, let me withdraw that last part of the question, but react to that shooting in Lodo. And uh, it was a tough issue, and I have to tell you, and I'm on the side of law enforcement. I carried a badge for a long time, but sometimes when I see the first public information officer reports, I say, well, he's he's like part of the Broncos. You know, it's, I'm not sure that I'm getting the straight skinny. I'm getting the perspective that the police want me to hear. And uh, the Lodo thing, the way it was rolled out, I mean, how soon did you know that maybe there's a problem here? Well, uh, first and foremost, before we even start talking about that particular incident, uh, really, uh, you know, my my sympathy and and best wishes that uh, everybody harmed in that situation uh, makes a full recovery. Uh, And uh, when you have six people that are hurt, uh, that are completely innocent, that aren't involved in the situation, that's not good. Uh, It's not good for anyone. And we have to acknowledge and recognize that. Uh, The evening uh, of the incident when, and it's very standard uh, protocol that uh, the division chief of of the involved uh, officer gives a a brief uh, statement of what we know at that time. And that, that took place. The following day, I believe, you know, if I remember my timeline correctly, the following day, we figure out that, uh, that that gun that the violent felon on an ankle monitor who by otherwise should have been in jail mm-hmm. uh, uh you know the, the the reason that this shooting happened in the first place that that gun had not been fired and as soon as that was as soon as we learned that then we pushed out a statement saying uh that the suspect's weapon was not fired um the, you know then uh, at uh, took Questions, tough questions with uh, regards to that, but um, we certainly shared that as soon as we knew that uh, that the suspect's weapon was not fired, that that information was uh, pushed out and, and shared uh, with the community. And uh, but ultimately, the body cam showed what happened. Correct, and that's a beautiful thing about body cams. Correct. It doesn't lie, and it was a split second thing. But 
how long did it take for you guys to have access to the body cam and then put it out there that maybe, uh-oh? Well, uh, again, so uh, as soon as we knew that uh, the suspect's weapon wasn't fired, there was a, a statement that was released. Mm-hmm. And uh, there's a very specific protocol that uh, takes into account uh, the rights of a defendant in these types of situations. And so this is all part of uh, SB, or excuse me, uh, 217, uh, uh, Senate Bill 217, that uh, delineates in the very first part of being able to release any body cam is the uh, the defendant as lawyer saying, yes, uh, that's uh, something that we want. So um, there is a a very specific process with timelines and uh, that process was followed and the timelines, uh, as soon as it was made or or as soon as uh, law would permit for that to be released, it was. Right, but you get to watch it as quick as you want to, right? Correct. Okay. And And as well as... uh, the uh, independent monitor, so civilian right. oversight, as well as uh, the Denver district attorney or designee. So uh, there, this is a very transparent process that uh, you have these individuals or representatives from these individuals there from the moment uh, that the incident uh, occurs and throughout the investigation. Right. And uh, as you left, everybody praised you for a lot of great programs you started, STAR program, Uh, which sent non-police officers to mental health crises. That was amazing. Uh, Your data collection systems are tremendous. Uh, What else did you get credit for? The Stanley Cup victory? No, uh, you've had a lot of innovations. What are you most proud about? Well, Star certainly gets uh, the most attention, and I'm exceptionally proud of uh, the the people uh, that we worked with, the people that continued to to do that uh, work. Um, the STAR program is part of uh, a bigger picture, the continuum of care. So that meant uh, expanding the co-responders because some calls require, uh, based on, on the dangerousness of the situation, a mental health professional and a police officer, right? If, the, if, if Paul is in crisis and I'm armed with a knife or a gun, that is a co-responder call. You have a, a co-responder who can help de-escalate the situation, but you also can't get uh, innocent people hurt, and a police officer needs to be there to help de-escalate that as well. The STAR program, if Paul's in crisis and not armed, well, you don't need the police officer there at all, and that's when the co-responder and the paramedic go. But um, the, the real question begins with what happens after that call, right? So Paul's armed, we de-escalate, high fives, get Paul, uh, the help that he needs with uh, MHCD, with Denver Health, wherever uh, that may be. If it's a non-armed uh, call or a less dangerous uh, call, the STAR program, uh, co-responder paramedic, de-escalate the situation, take Paul to the Solution Center Mental Health Corporation of Denver, Denver Health. Same thing. But what happens next week? What happens next month? And uh, why we call it the continuum of care, again, the other component that uh, I created uh, was uh, the outreach case coordinators. So then we do the follow-up. If Paul was in crisis today and it was de-escalated by STAR or a uh, co-responder team, great, that's wonderful. But what are we doing long-term to make sure that uh, Paul's needs aren't uh, recreating these dangerous situations a week from now, a month from now, a year from now? So I'm very proud of that. Uh, And do all these people report to you? Well, uh, (laughs) 
At one point, uh, at one point they did, um, you know, unfortunately, uh, because of uh, the narrative, because of the anti-police uh, sentiment, uh, something that, uh, that that we created, it was a passion project. I mean, I, I uh, was working on STAR when I was still a commander of Police District 1. STAR, the first conversations around creating this type of response took place in North Denver, 23rd and Federal, Chili Verde uh, Mexican restaurant on how can we do this and uh, and long before any of this was politicized we were building this out long before uh, any of the the nationwide uh, calls for alternative response we were already figuring out these solutions and that's why originally star was scheduled to launch on uh, April 1 um, but there was a little thing called the pandemic that got in the way uh, early March mid-march and we didn't know if we could keep two people in the same vehicle safe. Uh, There was difficulty getting PPE. And so we had to table Mm -hmm. uh, the implementation of STAR for a couple of months. And then we actually launched it on June 1 of 2020. Uh, But that was four years in the making. That wasn't something uh, that we saw a, uh, a cardboard sign and said, oh, well, let's put these two together and call it good. Uh, there was a lot of groundwork that was done in order to create both uh, the STAR program and the follow-up piece, the Outreach Case Coordinators, uh, which launched on June 30th of, of 2020. So very proud of that. I'm very proud of the FAST team. That's getting national attention uh, now, and that's uh, treating non-fatal shootings, uh, just like you would treat a homicide, right? So let me uh, digress just for a minute, if if you don't mind. Um, and that is, I'm, I'm going to point to myself here in the studio. If Paul gets shot, and I'm pointing to my left shoulder mm-hmm. in the in the shoulder here, and, I, and, and I'm not killed as a result of that, uh, that's luck, right? It's good luck on my part. It's bad luck at the person who was uh, pointing the gun at me trying to kill me. Right. If I get shot here and I'm pointing a few inches Mm -hmm. uh, towards my heart, then it's uh, luck again. Bad luck for me. uh, Good luck for the person that was trying to kill me. We investigate a murder. We roll out a team, vertical prosecution. You go all out on that particular case in order to hold accountable somebody that uh, shot and killed somebody. On that first situation, uh, those were decentralized investigations, and the detectives would do a great job on that for about two days. Uh, They would run hard on those cases, but then they'd get additional cases, burglaries, auto thefts, uh, first-degree assaults, second-degree assaults. And so those cases that are very difficult to prove, as, as you know, because the witnesses, the victims, sometimes start to get cold feet in those situations, would back away from the case. And now uh, those particular cases were, were uh, being solved at about a 30% uh, level. That's unacceptable because that means that shooter now is is still out on the street yeah. 70% of the Good time. Good for you. So That's created, what I'm talking about. Now those, now those cases are solved at 64%. Right. Uh, we're getting national attention. Duke, University of Chicago, DU, uh, a, a DOJ study to say, wait, you know, how come we didn't do this uh, in, in the past? I just had a a conversation with the reporter about a month ago that's that's doing a story on wow that's pretty good 
What about the red flag law? Was it a good tool to put in your arsenal? Well, uh, you know, again, uh, separating politics, right, uh, from this. It's our job to follow the law and, and do that to uh, the best of uh, our ability. Uh, can I point to situations in Denver where the red flag law was successfully used that otherwise would have resulted in shootings and murders? 100%. I can point to very specific cases where we uh, firmly believe that there were substantial steps taken where that individual was going to utilize a, a weapon and and create harm to uh, to our community. So uh, the answer to that question is yes. Um, now again... <laughs> Are um, you aware of it being abused in Denver? I'm not aware of it being Me abused neither. in Denver. And you know the other side would publicize that. And there was... Outspoken opposition by Steve Reams, Bill Elder down in Colorado Springs. Even the DA in Colorado Springs weighed in. This before Club Q. Oh, it's unconstitutional. I love it when Bill Elder says that. What uh, law school did you go to? You know, I'm, I'm just wondering. Uh, I think, anyway, I don't mean to disparage the man, but in a way I do because I think that crime was preventable. And I wrote a Colorado Sun column how they had him dead to rights, threatening families, SWAT got called out, shitty prosecution, and the community pays the price. That's what happens in this business, right? And I don't like it that these guys say, guess what? I heard on Rush Limbaugh that this is uh, unconst unconstitutional. Peter Boyles told me so. Therefore, I'm not going to enforce it. Because I hear smart lawyers like Kaplis and Brockler saying it's uh, against the Constitution somehow. And then they're going to uh, not protect their community. That pisses me off. How do you feel about it? Well, uh, you pointed to the fact that I got a little worked up when we're talking about illegal guns, right? And, uh, and I focus uh, very succinctly on illegal guns. Um, I'm very proud of our efforts with the red flag because I believe that uh, we clearly identified, articulated, and utilized uh, that law the way that it was uh, designed. Um, now, what I do want to point out is, uh, without wading into the politics and who said what uh, about uh, the constitutionality of the law, uh, we had our experts uh, that, that came in and, and helped us, both from the Denver District Attorney's Office and the Denver City Attorney's mm -hmm. Office, as, as we were uh, adhering to the law of the land uh, when that was being implemented. And I, uh, you know, was, was a part of that. We had our major crimes uh, team. We had our special operations team. Uh, myself, I wanted to make sure that this was done right, knowing how controversial it could be if uh, a weapon was was taken uh, in in a manner that uh, was was unconstitutional or in a manner that uh, was outside the, the the scope or the bounds of, of what this law was uh, intended to be and I'm very proud of uh, lieutenant Hernandez who who really helped uh, lead this cause uh, commander Phelan uh, division chief Montoya uh, this was something that that we that we knew uh, was was very controversial. We knew that it had to be done right, and uh, and they did. So I'm very proud of how we uh, implemented. I, I don't know what other people said. That's that's beyond. I'm putting two and two together because you just told me Colorado murder rates are through the roof. You mm -hmm. told me that red flag law enforcement in Denver has saved lives. Right. 
if it was enforced in other parts of Colorado, maybe the murder rate would not be so high. Uh, well, I, I think there's a lot of drivers of uh, Colorado's murder rate. And what I can also point to in Denver is, uh, you know, we had uh, 40% uh, up to 56% of our murders were committed by previously convicted violent felons, uh, individuals who are not uh, by law pro- uh, allowed to own or possess a firearm. That has nothing to do with, with red flag. That is a failure of the downstream impact of the criminal justice system. When you have people that are on parole, probation, or pretrial services under supervision that go on to kill people uh, in Denver, 32 of them in uh, 2021, 25 people were murdered in Denver when the defendant or the, the offender, the identified offender, was under supervision. That is a problem, and that has nothing to do with red flags. So I can point to, what is that, 50-plus uh, murders in the last two years where somebody who otherwise should have been in jail didn't commit that crime, but because of some uh, breakdowns in, in the system, was out on the street committing uh, harm and and took people's lives. Uh, we can point to a 32-year-old mother who is no longer with us, uh, a six-year-old who is now being raised by grandma and uncle when that individual was arrested in uh, Arapahoe County on an aggravated robbery, illegal gun, Jefferson County, a couple of months later, aggravated robbery with illegal gun, and in Denver, aggravated robbery, illegal gun. Guy's got a problem. All in about six months, we uh, released this person from jail, released by a magistrate, uh, you know, when he shouldn't have been released, and he shoots and kills a 32-year-old woman uh, for absolutely nothing. And so, you know, again, um, we have to point to, yes, if there's a problem, we got to get it fixed. And if it's a problem with with red flag, or if it's a problem with supervision or lack thereof, if it's, uh, you know, folks that uh, are are running around with palpo and and seeing no consequences as a result of it, possession of a weapon by previous offender, if if we have people who by law are prohibited from running around with guns, Mm -hmm. and they get a slap on the wrist oh six months probation good luck like really so so into the choir so after the summer of violence one of the things that happened in america was an assault weapon ban looks like that's going to be on the table again what do you think are you for it or against it uh, again i i try to uh wade out wade out of or, or or not weigh in on uh, on the Second Amendment. I know how controversial it is, and mm-hmm. and I believe we have a, a big enough problem as it is with illegal guns. That's but my then, biggest no, no, concern. Did, do you worry as police chief that your uh, troops will be outgunned when the other side has AR-15? I mean, let's talk about Uvalde. Talk about a black guy for police, mm-hmm. but they were scared. They knew it was a weapon of war. What's your reaction to all of that? Uh, the second we talk about Uvalde, we have to, again, uh, recognize the tragedy and and kids, uh, two teachers being murdered uh, unjustly. I 
certainly can't defend the actions of, of law enforcement uh, in Texas on, on that particular situation. Uh, I pray that that doesn't happen anywhere in the country, and I certainly pray that that doesn't happen in our state or in our city uh, here. Um, you know, these are these are tough situations, and uh, I, I truly believe that um, we have to do a better job of taking guns away from felons who by law are not allowed to own or possess them that in Denver uh, that the data shows that our biggest problem is these illegal guns that are disproportionately killing uh, communities of color 85% of the murder victims in Denver last year were persons of color and many of these policy changes that we see were uh, all designed uh, to to try to help uh, when you, you say know, illegal guns guns in the wrong people's hands? Correct. What about ghost guns? Denver just banned them. It appears that that might have been the weapon used in the Club Q murder. Would you advise jurisdictions to generally outlaw that? Would you get involved there? Typically, uh, you know, what we've seen in in our city, and, and we're seeing more and more ghost guns uh, as uh, as time's gone by. And, and yes, uh, folks are, are putting together these ghost guns that by law otherwise are prohibited from going to a gun store and, and getting a, a background check to see uh, if they qualify to, to purchase a weapon. So uh, there is a problem with, with ghost guns. And, and it, I think you phrased it perfectly. Perfectly, uh, I'm more concerned with the illegal guns being in the hands of individuals that aren't supposed to have them. That uh, they've already demonstrated a propensity towards violence. They've mm-hmm. already been involved in felony crimes, multiple felony crimes, and violent crimes. Let's start there. Let's make sure that these individuals uh, that that are committing these high-level crimes that they're held accountable for them, so that they don't go on to further victimize uh, the people of our city and state. As a police chief, did you worry about mass murder in your community when it happens in Boulder, when it happens at Club Q? Do you think? Yes. Oh, my gosh. That must be your nightmare every day. Uh, it is. And, uh, you know, I'll, I'll even uh, go backwards here for a second. Uh, my master's program is from uh, Naval Postgraduate School, and it's in uh, the Center for Homeland Defense and Security. They, they study these wicked problems all the time. So um, very concerned about uh, the uh, mass killing situations, very concerned about international terrorism, domestic terrorism, uh, insults uh, creating harm in our community. And it was something that uh, on a personal level that I I certainly uh, paid attention to and really expected uh, our team and our partnership to try to address these types of crimes. But uh, it was it was not just being the police chief and worrying about a school shooting uh, because it happened somewhere else. Uh, this is something that uh, I really dug deep into and, and was very fortunate to go to the number one uh, school in the country with regards to these types of studies. Uh, you've heard of that little school uh, in Boston, Harvard or something yes. like that? Uh, generally, they rank number two in uh, this particular degree and Naval Cambridge, graduate. actually, yeah. Yeah, that little town, uh, that little school. So very, uh, very concerned about it. I'm, I'm concerned about it uh, as we're, as we move forward. Um, what here. can we do about it? I mean, uh, you were, I don't know if you've tried this chat, GPT, artificial intelligence online. You're a data guy. 
I mean, what artificial intelligence may be able to do in terms of steering police in the right direction. I don't want to get science fiction on you, but you are the damn chief of police. I bet you've heard about this stuff. Where are we going with technology and crime prevention? So, uh, you know, there's a lot to be said uh, about it. Uh, some of uh, the technology might not be ready for prime time. Some of it is. Um, but we also have to recognize uh, people's individual rights and their individual rights to privacy. And this is a tough balance, right? We don't want to live in a police state where our individual freedoms are harmed by the state who is is uh, big brother looking over our shoulder and saying, hey, we uh, project that you're going to commit a crime in the future, therefore, you now, the movie uh, Minority Project, I believe, is the title. Minority of it. Report. I Min- think. Yes, Minority. Um, thank you for sure. uh, y- you know that we just scoop people up and say you know you're right. going to commit a crime. No, um, we have to to make a, a, a balance there, and it, it makes it very difficult. Uh, it makes it very difficult when you identify individuals who you believe uh, are capable, uh, have the means uh, to commit crimes in the future, and uh, you're very limited on what you can uh, do, what types of uh, investigations you can open on an individual, how much you can uh, dig into. You can you can look at the open source uh, media on right. individuals, but uh, we are limited, and, and rightfully so. So it makes it very difficult. There's case after case that we've seen across the country where individuals were on uh, you know people's watch lists, just like we've seen recently. Recently up in New York, New Year's uh, Day, the individual with the machete uh, who became radicalized, uh, there was a concern, but you can't arrest somebody on concern. You can't incarcerate somebody on a concern. You can look into it. Uh, you can you can try to identify uh, issues. You can try to get uh, some help and support uh, on this. But in that case, for example, uh, you know, folks were uh, raised these concerns. Law enforcement looked into it. The person uh, cr- uh, committed harm. And then it's, oh, well, how come the cops didn't do more about it? Right. I mean, that's the difficult situation here. There were no quote-unquote mass murders on your watch, but there were crime sprees, and uh, they were really devastating. The one by the guy who committed it at the tattoo parlor then went into a Denver high-rise, killed a guy. I think Michael Swiblin was his name. Correct. And he wrote about it ahead of time. So a lot of people said, why couldn't the police do anything? Uh, That crime had to affect you quite a bit. Tell us about that horrible episode. Uh, Well, and and I'm glad that you even put in the part that it uh, had to affect you. So um, I do take these uh, murders seriously. I've I've met with uh, brothers and sons and husbands and wives of of murder victims uh, on this situation. And and again, as we talk about this particular situation, I want to highlight the five murder uh, victims, both uh, in Denver and Lakewood, uh, as a result of this. And I want to praise the amazing Lakewood agent who demonstrated courage uh, beyond belief uh, when faced with uh, the most deadly situation any officer could ever see themselves in. And she came on, out on top. So, what a hero! 
and and I've uh, you know I try to stay in touch with with uh, that agent as well. She's doing great. I couldn't be more proud of her and how she's handling uh, this situation. Even though uh, she's a Lakewood agent, she's uh, she's pretty uh, impressive. Um, now, uh, it, you know, personal uh, note on this is um, one of the murder victims is 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 close to a family friend, and so you do take these things personal when uh, when when they happen. Um, in this particular situation, uh, you know, this person on more than one occasion was uh, investigated. And this shows the limitations of this, right? This this individual was involved in a gun crime and uh, was able to get that case expunged, that case sealed, right? And that had an impact on the downstream uh, investigation. This person uh, had a gun, menaced a, a person, assaulted a person in a uh, Denver grow house uh, here. Uh, that person, then, then uh, the suspect uh, was able to uh, seal the case that limited uh, uh you know I'm, I'm preaching to the choir here you know these types of situations Gosh, it, it's got eerie and terrible cl- club q similarities so uh then uh the person uh you know uh moves out of state uh on the situation the person was uh looked at by the feds the person committed uh a threats to an individual out of state uh our, our federal partners out this happened outside of denver it happened in the state of colorado they went and arrested this individual and the u.s attorney declined the case um so that had uh, an impact but um our last known location of this individual that that we could confirm was actually in southern Colorado. Then uh, and and we investigated. Uh, we had a tip. Hey, that we think that they live in this particular neighborhood. Here's where we uh, think the person lives. We had. In, uh, investigators went and knocked on the door, uh, showed pictures to management. Nope, never seen that person ever again. So, so we, you know, it's unique that we're talking about this because I had somebody, a, a state legislator, call me and say, well, how come you didn't red flag the person? Well, you have to, it, jurisdiction. Let me preach to the choir again. Love it, location, offense, uh, venue. We didn't have venue. We didn't know where this person was. Uh, we certainly looked in. We certainly uh, communicated with our federal partners uh, on this uh, situation because it was our goal to prevent it. I, I can also say that, uh, you know, I, I briefed uh, the mayor and city council in, in executive session the, uh, you know, my concerns. I, I, said that I'm concerned about insult, uh, and, and that's what the FBI... What is insult? Uh, you know, it might not be the greatest and title. And celibate, the Involun- guy in his basement yep. doing about the world? It, yep. it's Writing uh, it all down? Involuntarily celibate is what they right. what the feds have, have defined it as, and it falls under domestic terrorism. I hate and women. I... Before, you know, uh, a year before this uh, incident. Wait, let me get this straight because I'm taking this in and I know a little something about Denver the way it used to be. Passed the baton in 96. You picked it up in 95. Way to go. But there was an intelligence unit, Mm -hmm. right? Yes. DPD has guys who tries to keep track of the known dangers and occasionally, even after I was prosecutor, there might be a threat and those guys would help me out. Is that what you're talking about? Some of your intelligence unit crew 
were on to this guy, but they just didn't know where he was exactly? That's exactly it. And, uh, you know, we take these things uh, serious. Uh, the Denver, Depar- Denver Police Department had a black eye as a result of the spy file investigations. Uh, we had folks that were retaining files uh, that they shouldn't have. We had folks that, that uh, were operating outside the bounds. What year was that? I believe that was uh, early 2000s. And, and please for you know forgive me for not knowing the exact timeline uh, of this. So when it comes to these highly sensitive investigations, we do follow uh, the procedures. Uh, that individual rights to privacy is uh, part of the cornerstone of, of the Constitution. And uh, we adhere to that. And uh, you can only keep records for a certain amount of time. And when I talked about the sealed records that had uh, an impact. We we did look. We looked at all of the open source information that uh, that you could look at in this particular situation uh, there. They reached out to individuals that they could. They tried to uh, go make a personal visit and knock on uh, that person's door and uh, even, you know, show on the manager, hey, do you have this person living here uh, by name? Nope. Have you seen this person? Nope. I mean, um, and and so that is why not only uh, the the, the uh, rules uh, surrounding uh, this uh, uh, the the it also uh, impacted red flag. I, I had a state legislator. Hey, how come red flag? Because you don't have venue. We. We have no clue that this person is living in Denver and, you know, what and, and the person was living out of a van, uh, you know, at the time. Who knows where where the person uh, was? So you're saying this guy was on your radar. When people say, well, how come this guy wasn't on your radar? He was. Yes. And you just can't prevent all crime. You, well, and you think of free speech, right? We talk about the book, yes. uh, for example. Uh, had your had oh. your personnel read the book? No, they didn't read the book. They read, uh, you know, ep- excerpts just like you would on Amazon.com. Here's uh, the reviews of the book. Here's what uh, the the justification of the book. And if we remember, uh, the book was was titled Science Fiction. Uh, in this, this was genetic mutations and and all kinds of uh, different things and and similar. Uh, Had any of the victims reached out? Hey, this guy's no. written a book. He's threatening me. Uh, you know, I personally spoke to. Uh, to to an individual uh, at, at one of the areas, and uh, the person indicated that they had received a flyer um, when the book uh, was coming uh, out uh, on this, and that they had regretted, uh, you know, not following up with with uh, both the flyer and the book, and then letting people know, oh. Uh, these are real people, right? And and even in in some of his notes uh, on this, he says that I tran- uh, transcribed or uh, reversed the name. So how in the world are you supposed to figure out who's real and who's uh, fictitious uh, in a science fiction book based on genetic mutations? And then secondly, um, there's a there's there's plenty of uh, action packed thrillers that uh, Tom Clancy writes about uh, out there. Nobody is uh, putting Tom Clancy on the radar, right? But this guy had a record, and when I hear who's really at fault once again, and you're being diplomatic, it's prosecutors. They had an opportunity, and my goodness, I took it seriously because if you screw up as a big time prosecutor, there are big time ramifications. Mm-hmm. If somebody gets away with a violent crime, be assured they will probably do it again. And Months before this situation, this case was uh, presented to a U.S. attorney who declined charges. 
On what basis? Uh, that's all I can say. And uh, dang, I used to sit in the intake. We called it complaints at Lamar Simpson. Mm-hmm. I did it with a guy named Bill Ritter. Maybe you've heard of him. Chuck Lepley. Yeah, yes, We'd sit cool. right near your police chief's office. He used to be on the third floor, probably well before your time. Yep. But I used to hear like Dave Machat yelling at Sin Quan and through the wall. It was great. <laughs> that probably happened on a daily basis. Yeah, it, it happened. <laughs> uh, and and Daryl will tell his side of it too. But my God, the pressures. The, the other crime spree that really got to me was August 2021. I know it got to you too. Because you had to respond to a kid named Shmuel Silverberg. Oh. Got shot dead at Yeshiva Torres Chaim, Colfax and Stewart in our native city, Denver. Uh, and it was the kind of crime spree. Well, I don't really know what happened. You tell me what you remember about that awful crime spree. Uh, there was another shooting at where Colfax and Lafayette that day. Correct. Uh, do you remember that crime I, spree? Uh, I will never forget. Uh, obviously, well, I, folks may not know this, right? I, I grew up in North Denver. Um, I, you know, attended uh, the Boys and Girls or I, I hung out at the Boys and Girls Club. That's not too far away uh, from where the dormitory uh, for yeshiva used to uh, take place. Uh, there, I uh, had a you know, I continue to have a close relationship with where the Orthodox. Where Fourteenth Equipment. Correct. Then, Cor- um, Colfax. Um, um, yep. Right. My, block. my dad grew up fourteen hundred block equipment. Well, uh, Johnson Boys and Girls Club is uh, just a couple of blocks away, and I. Spent some of my uh, youth, uh, I would say the the productive uh, part of my youth, uh, hanging out uh, down there. On the old west side. On the old west side, yes. Uh, So I grew up at basically 33rd and Elliott, uh, Mm -hmm. 32nd and Federal. And, uh, you know, very, very proud of my North Denver roots. Um, But, uh, you know, very close and very connected to the Orthodox Jewish community. They uh, have been victimized uh, far too often for absolutely no reason, uh, being targeted uh, just by uh, dress, being victims of verbal assaults, of physical assaults, for just going from home uh, to to school or from home, uh, you know, to the synagogue. And, and that's just not right. And I developed very close personal uh, relationships with uh, uh, Rabbi Wasserman, uh, with uh, Rabbi Steinberg, uh, who I, you know, all of which I consider to be uh, close friends. Uh, Beth Jacob uh, School is, is right around the corner uh, there as well. And they're the girls' dormitory and, and such. And so uh, I spent a lot of time uh, at the yeshiva. Uh, I was invited from time to time to speak to the boys. Uh, usually it was pretty late at night and, uh, you know, often on a, on a Sunday evening, but I was happy to talk to, to, the, uh, to the boys because, you know, they were just a, a, a great audience and asked some, some really good questions. Um, so sorry about that, but uh, yeah, that, no, that no. is a, 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 I mean, a day I'll, I'll right. never forget. Uh, we're, we're, we're Denver guys. I, I, I prosecuted a crime where one of the yeshiva bachers, the students, had like a 20-minute break, and he had a new bike, was riding it around as much as he could, got accosted, three guys tried to rob him, and he fought back, and he beat the crap out of him at PH. I said, how did you learn to do that? And he said, well, I read a book about martial arts. My dad wouldn't let me take the class, but I read about it, and it's the first time I did it anyway. I digress. And, you know, the victim there was named Shmuel Tornick. In my case, 
Sadly, right there at this beautiful corner, Shmuel uh, Silverberg got murdered. And I felt like it was a hate crime, but then I hear that it wasn't, and it was five teenagers. Do you know what's happened to those five teenage perpetrators? This crime, mid-August 2021. What do you think's happened? Well, I do know that uh, it was a crime spree, uh, that uh, they committed multiple crimes. Uh, They uh, shot uh, somebody on East Colfax. They continued their crime spree. Um, And and that's why uh, at the time, you know, if if it were a hate crime, if it were a bias motivated crime, we certainly would say, yes, it's a hate crime. Yes, let's add the criminal charges that enhance the penalties with regards uh, to this. But by all indications, it looked to be uh, you know, a crime spree, a group of individuals that, uh, you know, found each other uh, through bad means and then... Uh, through being in Lecon Mountain together, You're exactly right. right. And uh, Lecon Mountain is a, a penitentiary for juveniles. Juvenile right. detention facility, and, and uh, they they were creating harm. They, they uh, you know, shot and, and killed... Uh, well, they shot and permanently injured, uh, paralyzed an individual on East Colfax. Uh, they continued into to Lakewood. I mean, just a just a crime spree that uh, left devastation in its wake. And and I get you that you have to prove why they did it. But still, Shmuel Silverberg was dressed in that traditional Orthodox garb. Correct. They could identify him. They made a decision. One of them did to shoot him dead and. I just have to wonder if it would have happened if he looked different. Yes, uh, you know, if if there uh, was the ability to enhance the crime, if we felt that this was uh, as a result of a bias-motivated individual, mm-hmm. we certainly would have uh, done this. But it, it, it really spree. doesn't matter because it's first-degree murder either way. But right. uh, I did uh, get a hold of the Denver DA's office today because I've been trying to follow this. They're still waiting for their arraignment. One of them is tomorrow, but I'm telling you, and you know it better than anybody, what the pandemic did to the justice system, not good. Am I right? Well, I I, I think that we point to the pandemic and we try to blame all of these issues on Mm COVID-19. And uh, from my perspective, um, that's not the case. From my perspective, it's a combination uh, of issues. And I think uh, we shouldn't just look for the simple answer and say, oh, it's pandemic, everything's going to solve itself. Uh, We have, as I indicated, the 32 murders that occurred last year, uh, 2021, in uh, Denver that shouldn't have, that were committed by somebody under supervision, parole, probation, pretrial, the 25 murders that occurred the year before. You can't blame that on uh, a pandemic. You can blame that on an overcorrection in the criminal justice system that led to violent repeat offenders being uh, out on the streets, creating great harm in our community and not being held accountable the way that they should be. And for the victims, the families uh, of these murder victims, uh, the one that happened in broad daylight off of Broadway with a couple from Cincinnati who were just returning uh, a car, that individual uh, wasn't on probation, they were on double secret probation uh, for violent crimes. Like, at what point do we say, wait a minute, um, 
what are we doing here? How about the family, uh, the husband who was killed, uh, the wife who was shot, and thank God survived this? That, that should not have occurred. Shame on us as a criminal justice system for allowing that to happen. But that's what occurs when the pendulum, when the overcorrection swings too far to the extremes. I'm not a lock everybody up and throw away the key. We need a fair balance and just system that uh, holds accountable repeat and violent offenders, but also uh, creates opportunities to uh, help rehabilitate folks and prevent crime in the first place. Right, but you need a court system clicking on all cylinders. And I'm a guy who's not going to blame the cops for everything because prosecutors are a big part of it. And if you have a system where you don't even get to arraignment until 18 months after the crime. Right. And I'm telling you, COVID kind of stopped the courts in their tracks. Continuances were granted. And it's a difficult thing. And people suffer mm-hmm. as a result. People get murdered, et cetera. So, well, let me, let me uh, right. quickly, uh, you know, to me, these are policy decisions, mm-hmm. right? There was a decision made on we're going to shut down the courts. Uh, not all cities did that. And there was a study done. Uh, in Wichita, Kansas, because they didn't shut down the court systems. And it shows what jurisdictions uh, did not shut down their court systems and what the impact was on crime and what cities did. And so this is why we need to look at that research. We need to look at evidence. There's a a study out of Philadelphia. Uh, It's deprosecution and death. And it studies 10 years of uh, what you would call a uh, moderate uh, prosecution office, middle of the road not too extreme on the left, not too extreme on the right. And then uh, they made some changes in, in, and then a, ter- a tenure uh, where uh, the pendulum had swung in that judicial district. And it says uh, that attributed for 70 plus murders per year over that 10 year period. That's 700 murder victims. So all of these pieces uh, play a part, and it is why we need to really study policies, study these decisions, and say, did it have the desired impact, the desired outcomes that we want, and do we have the courage to change course? And so uh, here's where I am going to get myself uh, in trouble, and I promise I'm not trying to wade into any political issue, but this is what highlights to me why policy matters. So for example, um, we have an influx of migrants into the United States currently. Yes. And we're not blaming CBP. We're not blaming the Border Patrol saying, you know, you guys are failing at your job. There was a policy decision. And I'm not going to sit here and say one policy is right and one policy is wrong. I'm saying that policies have to be studied to say, what is the outcome? And is this the desired effect? So are you saying crime is up, don't blame the police? Uh, I'm saying that uh, we have to study all of these things because uh, if you do a 10-year logical study on the state of Colorado, how did we go from a historically safe state with uh, violent and property crimes well below the national average? When we talk about uh, as a a state – that murder rate that I told you about that now exceeds the the national level, uh, well exceeds the national uh, level, it has tripled in that uh, time period. In Colorado. It, in Colorado. And is that 
did, did the cops forget how to do their job? Did the den- you you helped train Denver police officers? Did they forget how to be police? Did uh, Aurora, Boulder, Longmont, Colorado Springs, Pueblo? Did they did they forget how to do this? Right. Or but but, but to me the police have changed. For the, one, it's not as desirable a profession. Correct. Anybody could go on YouTube. I watched you as a District One commander ten years ago. And you were gung-ho, enthusiastic, loved being a cop, thought everybody should be a cop. And I always felt the same way when I was working in law enforcement. My next career, I'm going to be a cop. It's exciting. It's meaningful. You get a lot of vacation. You get to retire at 52 like Paul Pazin. (laughs) All these pensions, you probably get something from the military. I don't know. Good for you. But I'm just saying... It was a rewarding career. You're the good guy. You're the Marvel superhero. Yep. But a lot of that tarnish has gone away, and you were right there when George Floyd happened. Derek Chauvin kneeling on George Floyd's neck, people in the crowd saying, get off of him. The most shocking thing to me, the three other cops who did nothing. How did it impact you and could you see what was going to flow there from so uh first and foremost uh the murder uh of george floyd never should have occurred uh that is something that uh you know has stained law enforcement in this profession forever uh you know that set back police community relations at least 20 years if not longer. Um, What we saw there uh, was inhumane. What we saw there was uh, something that uh, really rattled the conscience of every uh, American, like, oh my gosh, this should not have occurred. And I condemn the actions and the behavior of those four police officers. And I wish I was present and I would have thrown uh, that police officer off of uh, George Floyd. And, and uh, you know, my hope is that, that uh, in the future, that not only here in our city, that we've uh, trained our officers with able uh it, it's a, a a very specific program uh, that comes out of uh, yale and uh, has been proven in the medical and the airline industry to to create those interventions it's one thing to have a policy that says that uh you need to take action it's another to train that and we were uh one of the first 30 cities in the entire country uh first 30 law enforcement of 17,000 agencies uh, to to do this uh, active bystandership for law enforcement to train officers to grab that cop and throw them off of uh, anybody that they're committing harm to. So first and foremost, I condemn uh, you know the actions uh, of uh, those individuals. And part of that training is because there was a blue line. I mean, honestly, yes. at the end of a chase, Oftentimes, people would get abused and officers put up with it. And that's a realization that these guys are not going to get sufficiently punished in the courts or perception of that. That's how it can turn into a vicious spiral, am I right? Probably Derek Chauvin's thinking, this guy's not going to be punished by the court system here. I'm going to punish him right here. I... I have no clue what he was thinking. He definitely wasn't thinking because it uh, really 
destroyed the relationship between law enforcement and community across the country. Mm-hmm. And he really, uh, you know, those actions of, of all four officers uh, created irreparable harm that we're still, uh, as a as a society, as a country, are paying for. Because as we talk about these murder rates and crime rates going up, it disproportionately impacts communities of color. 85% of the murder victims in Denver in 2021 were persons of color. That's a problem. We should be standing up and saying, wait, we got to do something uh, about this. This is not okay. Just as we condemn the actions that took place in Minneapolis, that took place in Louisville, Kentucky, or uh, that took place closer to home in Aurora, Colorado, none of those uh, situations were okay. Uh, We have to hold accountable the people that are responsible for those. You're talking about Elijah McClain. A trial's coming up for the first responders, some of them cops. You regarded as a bad deal. The cops went overboard. Um, I, you know, again, uh, we we still need to figure that out. I mean, I think right. there's, uh, you know, something to be said about the uh, amount of sedative that was was given there. And and I don't, I'm, I'm not a a medical doctor. Or I don't work in an ME's office. I don't know, uh, you know, really the the science behind. But the that contact was shitty, wasn't it? And the interaction the, the, that's not professional. What what I can say is that uh, Elijah McLean should be alive today. And um, you know, I and, and it's a, a tragedy for his family, for his friends, for his loved ones that he's not. And I think I think most people could. I think everybody uh, could and, and should agree that that's uh, the case. And and these situations have compounded and and really uh, created uh, a, a negative relationship. And uh, we have to continue to try to work to overcome uh, these relationship uh, challenges that we have because what it is is it's continuing to create harm in our community. Michael, of course, is a great sponsor of my show, but more than that, he's my lawyer, my end-of-life planning lawyer, and I've got two dogs. What about you? I have two dogs right now as well. And not only do you love your dogs at home with your kids and your wife, but you get involved with dog issues in your law practice. Tell everybody about that. So I will write pet trusts, which is you can earmark money to take care of your pets. Um, you know, a lot of people, you know, they've got their dogs and you know, they love their dogs. But then if somebody were to, you know, if you if you were to pass away, you know, who's going to take your dogs? Who would, who would love your dogs as much as you do? I don't know that anybody would love your dogs as much as you do. But like, I grew up with dogs. And so if I were to pass away, then my parents or my siblings could take the dogs. So when you set up a pet trust, you can dictate who's going to get those dogs and then who you can leave money to take care of the dogs as well. I like working with you and I think you are ahead of your time. You have 15 different locations. How cool is that? It is nice to be able to go to all the different locations and, you know, meet people where it's comfortable and more convenient for them. And nobody wants to drive from one part of Metro Denver to the other to meet with a lawyer. You will come to them. Yep. And I'll deal with traffic so you don't have to. Tell us how people can get in touch with you. My direct phone number is 720-394-6887. Or they can go to my website, which is mobileestateplanning.com. 
And again, that's mobileestateplanning.com. And there's even a schedule, you know, there's a book an appointment link on this on the website. All right, Michael Bailey, thank you. Right. And is it fair for me to wonder if Elijah McLean would be dead if he wasn't black? Just as if I wondered if Shmuel Silverberg would be dead if he didn't look the way he did. Identifiable, both a little unusual in their garb. Anyway, um, I appreciate you talking about this. It impacted your life when the demonstrations went off in Denver There were uh, protests, really scary ones. Denver police had to respond. It appears they over-responded. A federal court uh, jury awarded $14 million to about a dozen plaintiffs. What do you say regarding all of that? Well, uh, what I can say is that, uh, you know, the the very first protest uh, so occurred in, in Denver on, on May 28th. And, you know, in my mind, I relive May 28th, May 29th, May 30th, May 31st, and June 1st uh, in my mind over and over uh, again. What, what could have uh, been done differently? Um, how could have the situation been handled? Uh, a couple of things on this. Um one, uh, often we learn from other, you know, we learn from the situation. We also point to another jurisdiction and say, okay, uh, what did they do in the progressive cities that, uh, you know, have dealt with these types of situations before? Seattle, Portland, uh, Chicago, Los Angeles, New York. If you look at, at uh, you know, the, the level of violence associated with uh, these types of, of protests. There were challenges in similar size cities uh, that we saw, uh, Indianapolis, Atlanta, Louisville, uh, you name it. Folks had challenges trying to deal with uh, with these situations. And you can't point to uh, a, a medium-sized city and say, oh, well, just do what Seattle did because four people were killed as a result of, of those actions, two in the jazz, two on the highway. Uh, you can't definitely can't point to Portland because they had 100-plus days of very violent uh, protests. Uh, you look to Chicago and the 8,000 cops that they have. Uh, the videos that I've seen out of Chicago look eerily similar to those in Denver. You can't point to Los Angeles, um, you know, who's dealt with difficult situations in the past and, and say, oh, well, you know, they've uh, got it all figured out uh, because their videos look very similar to to the videos you see here. Uh, New York, they have uh, hundreds of officers that their full-time job is this. And you can't point to New York and say, oh, well, they did it. These are difficult situations to manage. We, we can even fast forward uh, six, seven months, um, you know, uh, that, that occurred in, in Washington, D.C. on January 6th uh, after months and months of, of being able to uh, plan or, or uh, defend a, a location. When, when you're dealing with uh, individuals in a large crowd and some of those individuals have a propensity or involved in violent behavior, it is very difficult to manage. And I'm not excusing everything that uh, that was done in, in our city. Um, we will continue to learn uh, from those uh, types of situations and, and try to improve on what that type of response uh, is and was. But uh, at the time, it was very much in line with national standards and national pos- uh, policies. And do those policies need to be reviewed? Do you need uh, an outside 
outside perspective saying, hey, um, you know, this, these are some of the, the, the changes that, that are necessary. The OIM did that. There were 17 recommendations, and those recommendations were implemented immediately. Did you feel like you were in a war? During those days? Uh, well, I wouldn't know. I wouldn't say a war. I, I mean, at one point you walked down the street, famous picture of you walking with Black Lives Matters. It wasn't a war, but it wasn't exactly peaceful. What was it? Well, it definitely, you know, I think that, uh, it, you know, it was a, a combination there. It was in the middle, right? Uh, we certainly can't call it a war. You don't want to have a war with your own citizens. And um, with $4 million of damage uh, in in the metro area as a result of it, you can't say that it was uh, entirely uh, peaceful as well. And, um, you know, I was, I was hurt. Uh, you know, when we started this, show where we started the segment by talking about uh, our roots in Denver. And, and I saw the city that I loved, the beautiful city that I loved, uh, the people of of this uh, city, um, you know, being harmed, um, engaging in, in violent behavior. And, and it it hurt me, um, you know, when I uh, even before uh, marching with folks that uh, that happened on June one, and there was not a single violent protest after June one. Um, so, uh, did that help de-escalate the situation? Yes, uh, it did. But um, you know, I'd gone out to, to see it firsthand, and uh, one of the national channels uh, they filmed me and I got tears in my eyes and they wanted to interview me and I couldn't, I, I was crying. This, this is not okay. I wasn't happy, uh, with, with, uh, what had occurred. I was, uh, hurt and, and heartbroken, um, by, by what was taking place because what happened in, in, uh, Minneapolis and Louisville or, or, or I felt would not have happened in Denver. I felt that we had put the mechanisms in place, uh, and and we did. Uh, we would not have arrested uh, anybody for a fake twenty dollar bill. That's. I mean, you know some of Denver's policies. Right. You've never seen that case come across the DA's office because you send that to uh, the the Secret Service. That gets. Uh, you know, that's a a letter to the U.S. Secret Service with the copy or with the the bill, and they do the investigation. So first and foremost, they wouldn't have been arrested in the first place. Uh, I don't think that uh, what happened in the other two jurisdictions would have happened in Denver based on the, the safeguards that we have put uh, in place, uh, including uh, banning chokeholds and such. So um, it just hurt me that that these things happen a thousand miles away and uh, our, our beautiful city, uh, the people of our be beautiful city, uh, many of which who, who were in fear, um, were, you know, impacted uh, by the horrible tragedy that I condemn, uh, you know, to the fullest extent. I was right there, my law office, and we were considered an essential profession. So I kept going down even during the pandemic. And all of this erupted during the pandemic. And I'm at 1600 Broadway. Mm with our windows boarded up, et cetera. And I've lived my life around the city and county building, the Capitol, and it was discouraging, no doubt about it. And um, hindsight is twenty twenty. The The problem is that battle lines sort of got drawn between Black Lives Matter and Denver police. And what I worry about is uh, that um, the... Just like the country gets too divided, 
the police get too divided from the public when, when they keep getting shouted at. Do you have those concerns? Does this account for why it's harder and harder to get officers? Um, you know, again, uh, without oversimplifying and saying, you know, A uh, plus B equals C in, in this type of, of situation, uh, what I can say is that uh, the relationship between uh, law enforcement and its uh, community, the community that it serves, has been negatively impacted, and it is likely to take decades to rebuild those types of relationships, uh, both here and across uh, the country. And, uh, you know, I uh, you know, before this happened, I I didn't believe that this was possible. I felt we had a very good relationship uh, with our community. I saw it uh, day in and in and day out. Uh, I saw a lot of support, and particularly during the pandemic. Right? Let me just rewind the clock for a second, mm-hmm. and what would take place in Denver at 8 p.m. with uh, a lot of support, because as you indicated, you were still going downtown. Uh, Police officers, firefighters, uh, EMS, uh, medical personnel, they were still going to work. Our public works department, they were still going to work. And it was a ghost town. Uh, I, I, I didn't miss a single day uh, during that time period, and um, I got to see it. But we had a lot of uh, community support prior to this, and, uh, you know, uh, the murder of, of, of George Floyd and the, the horrible, unjust situations that have occurred prior to this uh, really uh, had a negative impact on um, our relationship with our community. And, and that is something that, uh, you know, too many uh, people uh, pay the price uh, as a result of that. You have to, police are the community and the community are the police. Uh, you know, I'm born and raised in North Denver, graduated from Denver North High School. I'm as Denver as it gets. And uh, I care about uh, the people of this city. My family lives in the city. Uh, loved ones live in the city. People that I grew up with still live uh, in the same houses in North Denver. Uh, and and uh, to see uh, something that I didn't think was, was possible occur. It, it just hurts. And I, you know, I, I, I wish that that, uh, never would have happened. And in it the first hurt place. that part of town. Did you see the McDonald's at 16th and court is closing? Mm-hmm. I thought that was indestructible. It started in 79 and it was a place for weird people to hang out. I guess that included me occasionally, but it's just a lot of downtown is disappearing. And, uh, some of it is has nothing to do with policing, but it's sad to see. And people are afraid of crime downtown. It became uncomfortable because the business community is gone, so the city is turned over to um, people who uh, might commit crimes. It, it, it's a different feel. Would you agree? It's a uh, a very different feel, and um, you know, let me let me just say that. Um, we've been here before, uh, you know, as somebody who's born and raised in this city and uh, 52. So the only time I haven't physically lived inside the city and county of Denver was my one tour in the United States Marine Corps. And uh, you and I have seen this. We've seen this in the mid 80s when downtown Denver was a ghost 
town. Uh, we've seen booms and we've seen busts. Right. Uh, some of these, you know, as a result of economic downturns, uh, some of them as a result of uh, decisions, outside decisions, some of them uh, as a result uh, of, you know, uh, feeling unsafe. And this is when we need to come together collectively and identify the problem appropriately, not excuse it, not look for the simple answer of, oh, well, it's just the pandemic. Oh, well, it's, you know, just, uh, you know, this uh, group of individuals that, that caused uh, this situation. When you paint with a broad brush, it's not good. And this is when we have to look at that evidence and data, identify the policy decisions that are contributing, tweak those uh, policy decisions so that way we can get back to the very vibrant city and, and vibrant state that used to enjoy very low uh, crime rates. I was extremely proud of, of what we had done in, in 2019. We kept crime down and we actually had 6,000 fewer people go to the Denver uh, city jail. And we did that by focusing on the most violent and diverting folks into lead law enforcement assisted diversion, putting the right people, the, the repeat and violent offenders in jail and uh, supporting uh, the, the, the folks that needed help and keeping them out of the system. 2019 is how we did that. Uh, we had the most number of police officers the department had ever seen, uh, 1,620 uh, officers. We focused on uh, the right issues. We uh, kept crime down and 6,000 fewer people went to jail. There are solutions. There's there's a very simple way to uh, to fix this. It takes uh, a, a bit of a shift. It takes a partnership with the, the state of Colorado in order to do it. We've uh, done it in this country before, in New York, uh, with uh, you know what we saw in, in adding four officers per thousand residents, and and it's something that actually is taking place currently in uh, many countries in Europe. There's data, uh, there's research behind this that says there is a way to prevent the crimes from occurring in the first place, hold accountable those that are repeat and violent uh, offenders and reduce your prison population. And you can do it all for about the same amount of money that you're spending now. So why There are solutions. Let me ask you this. Do you think you are treated fairly by the media? Um, I'm not. Uh, you know, actually, I felt I had a pretty good relationship with uh, with the media. To be honest with you, um, where I, do you get your news? What nightly news do you watch, or do you record them all? Uh, well, I was recording them all uh, as as the police chief and, and making sure that I didn't miss stories that I might get uh, questioned about the right. next day. For uh, for example, um, now I you know pay attention to the national news quite a bit. Uh, I, I've historically recorded the three national broadcasts just to see what's going on. Um, I, I wouldn't no, I wouldn't say that. I wouldn't say that that I was mistreated by the media. I feel that I mean, actually, I got a text today from uh, a, a reporter who's looking at uh, a job transition, and, and I said, yeah, use me as a reference, and if there's a way that I can help you, I will. Didn't they get pissed at you for cutting off uh, police dispatch or following radios? Uh, they feel like yeah. you are not as transparent as you should have been. What was that beef about? Oh, well, uh, you know, uh, <laughs> thanks for giving me an opportunity to uh, explain the, the situation, because I think what gets lost in this particular story is um, I, 
I worked with folks for eight months. I invited uh, the the uh, media in. So there's like a broadcast association. There's a print media association. We had uh, an executive from the, the leading uh, TV channel uh, that came in and we said, hey, PIII, right? Personal uh, information, personal identifying information is something that that we hold dear as Americans. We we just got done talking about the privacy issues that we had, and uh, we as Americans, part of the Constitution, part of uh, the Four Corners, uh, we we believe in uh, privacy. Over the police radio, we were broadcasting names, date of birth, social security numbers, information that you should not broadcast, right? When you're trying to identify uh, Paul Pazin and you find out that there's another Paul Pazin in the state of Colorado, you need to drill that down state, you know, with uh, date of birth, uh, last four of the social security number. When you're talking about uh, sex assaults that have occurred and you're giving out the addresses to where the victim is, that is personal information that should not be freely broadcast for any and every person to... And and uh, up until you changed things, people could monitor those calls and chat down whatever they heard exactly or even record it exactly and it was recorded you could uh go back and fi- a, a suspect could find out where the witness was calling from uh by going to broadcastify and find out that oh that's the neighbor that called the police on me right that's sensitive information that otherwise we don't allow social media we don't allow the government to broadcast that type of information 29 other jurisdictions in the state of Colorado had already gone to encryption we were all we were doing a a technology upgrade and it made sense to do that it was going to take us 8 months to do it so i invited these folks in we met once a month hey Here's what the issue is. Here's why this information needs to be privatized. How can we continue to communicate with the media so you have timely information and what you need? We met in my office, uh, you know, repeatedly, month after month, and and they would give me ideas. Okay, how about you give us, um, you know, access to the CAD? Okay, let's take a look at it. Then we'd go back and see the engineers. It would give too much uh, information uh, over the CAD, even more private information, and there was no way to restrict it. Then uh, they said, okay, well, how about you delay your transmissions? Okay, let's take a look at it. You send it to the engineers. Well, all that does is instead of a suspect knowing where the witness called from, immediately knows 10 minutes later. Nope, that won't work. I mean, so we took back and forth input how can we do this where you get what you need we get what uh we need as far as protecting this uh pii and finally it was determined okay you can buy a police radio from us there'll be a user agreement that way uh you know if you abuse this police radio if you uh, divulge sensitive information and that creates harm to that individual that that's on your watch right so there was an agreement. Okay, let's do this. The we, we send out uh, how much the radios are going to cost. You know what this uh, whole thing would look like. Lawyers got involved. Not even local lawyers. This this person was from Say that New with York. Uh, oh, absolutely. Lawyers got involved and they said, nope, uh, we're not going to do that. Uh, one uh, because of the auditor's clause, Ev- and, and you know this as well. Every contract in the city and county of Denver. 
has oversight by Denver's elected auditor. And the news channels did not like that. And then the second piece was that liability. If they divulge a victim's name, a witness's name, and that uh, person takes harm, that's, that's not on us. That's on them, just like any other liability case. And so the lawyer said, nope, don't sign those user agreements. Mm-hmm. And that was it. And so did, uh, did I take a lot of fodder uh, afterward of being this person that was the 30th uh, agency in the state of Colorado to do this? And subsequently, I would guess 30 more departments. And this is something that's going across the country. Uh, you would not want your social security number, your name, your date of birth. If you called in uh, on a neighbor, you don't want that information being broadcast. And it was, uh, it was something that, you know, nearly a dozen free uh, phone apps, you could uh, listen to this. It's just not smart to, to uh, have personal identifiable information being broadcast on smartphones and, and access everywhere. So, um, you know, the attempt, uh, was made, there was a good faith effort to bring, uh, folks in and, uh, and, and I'm proud of the efforts, uh, that took place, uh, there. It, and ultimately it was the right decision that, you know, some folks didn't agree with. All right. And our remaining time, here's a simple question. Can Denver, uh, reduce crime and how to, how can Denver do that? 100%. We absolutely can. Uh, you know, we build on uh, the, the things that actually worked, as I've indicated, that uh, you can reduce crime and you can do it in a fair and just way that doesn't uh, over-police particular neighborhoods or, or segments of our community. Um, you just certainly, uh, actually, let me, let me uh, go a little bit further uh, on this. Uh, as I indicated, you need well-trained uh, police officers that care about their community. Uh, we need to support the officers that, that do this. Um, we need prosecutors that are victim-centric, that realize that uh, there are real victims uh, in our community that uh, in in many cases have irreparable harm uh, committed that devastate uh, families uh, for years and years into the future. And we have to center the victim in these prosecutions. You need fair uh, and and, uh, unbiased judges to make decisions based on the law, not on personal feelings. And you need reasonable laws. Uh, You need reasonable laws in the state of Colorado that says stealing a person's car should not be a misdemeanor. Uh, stealing uh, a, a single mom's only way to get to work, only way to take the kids to school, only way to get to the grocery store uh, shouldn't be treated as a misdemeanor crime when uh, somebody in a fancy neighborhood who's got 10 cars and they're all very expensive cars get their car uh, taken and that car is a felony. And I'm proud that, uh, you know, bringing awareness to this, the governor has switched his position. Hey, we need to take another look at, at 271. Uh, I've also brought attention to the fact that Colorado has the fourth worst recidivism rate in the country. The governor's taken action and made some changes in the Department uh, of Corrections uh, over there. We need uh, the political will to say, wait, 
what's working, what's not working. Let's stop doing things that we think uh, feel good. Let's do things that make sense, that we can prove based on evidence, data, and research. And there is. We absolutely can implement. We've proven it. We proved it in 2019. Kept crime down, reduced the total number, going 6,000 fewer uh, going into uh, the Denver City Jail, provided support to people that needed it, uh, people that were dealing with substance abuse issues, mental health uh, challenges, giving them uh, support and keeping them out of the system, but being, uh, you know, steadfast and holding people accountable for those repeat and violent crimes. And uh, you do that by fully supporting uh, police center, uh, victim centric prosecution, fair and just judges and reasonable laws. And and I think most people, if they took time to take a look at what's taking place, we're out of balance. But uh, there are some things that have changed that maybe history doesn't provide the lesson. Fentanyl, for example. Did the war on drugs work? Uh, is uh, our current system working? We just legalized hallucinogens. Cannabis is legal. What's your perspective on all of that? Actually, I'm really glad that you're asking. We could probably do a whole show on this particular issue. And uh, you lived uh, this. Uh, you were on the front lines dealing with what's uh, called the war on drugs. I, I think that uh, this goes to that oversimplification, right? We like to uh, label things. We like to you know, say this is what it is. Um, from my perspective, it was a war on the violence surrounding drugs. Um, I don't think people are too excited about uh, an individual that's, uh, you know, battling substance abuse. And, and we say, oh, let's go lock that person up and throw away the key. It's the violence surrounding right. the uh, abuse. It's the drug dealer it's, it's who's the victimized. It, right. it's, it's the violence. Yes. This is this is my turf, and I'm going to shoot anybody uh, that, that tries to interfere with my mine. Picks. Like the double murder that took place at Colfax and, and Ogden not too long ago. Uh, like the shooting in, uh, in in Union Station, that's over. So, so it's not the war on the drug itself. It's w a war on the violence associated with the drug, and it's the individuals involved in that violent criminal behavior that need to be accounted or held accountable for their actions, not uh, over criminalizing uh, the possession of a of, of, of a substance. I mean, you know, I think uh, you know this. I mean, I. I Back in, in that early 90s, mid 90s, uh, early 2000s, uh, it wasn't like people were getting hauled off into jail for a, a, a crack rock, a dime bag of marijuana when, when it was legal. I mean, more of that stuff ended up in, in the sewer system than it did uh, the individual being sent to prosecution. You're saying that the cops would let it slide? Uh, if it is personal use, right. you were focused on drug dealers. Right. You were focused on the individuals that are c creating harm uh, in a community. Although back in the day, and see, I am older, but there was a crackdown on crack cocaine and some sentencing disparities. All I'm yes. saying is fentanyl's sort of a new thing because so many people are dying mm -hmm. unintentionally. There was just a guy sentenced to life in prison for distributing on the Western Slope. It's tragic. It's something that's sort of new, as is our political bifurcation, as is the mental health crisis that social media and COVID has produced. Yep. And I would just bring it back home to the time that you recall so well, 
the end of May and then June, you linked arms. There was still tension downtown. And on June 10, 2020, a guy named Michael Close in the ballpark area of downtown took an AK-47 and fired it 24 times, killed mm-hmm. Isabella Thales, wounded Darian Simon, Darian Simon, my client and my friend now. Mm-hmm. So that's very personal. And I know you were at the scene. That had to be another crime that will stay with you till the day you die. Am I right? You're 100% right. Um, I... Uh, have uh, kept in contact uh, with the family and and hope to uh, forever. It's a situation that uh, never should have happened. I wish it never did uh, occur. Uh, you know, uh, Isabella, just you know, beautiful soul that uh, should still be with us. And um, thank goodness this person uh, was held accountable for their uh, crimes, but. Um, it's terrible. It's a tra- terrible tragedy. Um, I, you know, it, it, the whole thing is terrible. I, I, I can't say anything. It, it has uh, impacted me, and it will impact me forever. And I know that date uh, very, very well. Uh, it's a day before my brother's birthday, and and uh, I recognize that anniversary uh, as as I do uh, many others. Uh, Valentine's Day, a, a three year old that was killed by a uh, stepfather, and I still uh, can can vividly remember uh, this young baby, uh, you know, on the slab at the coroner's office and just uh you know certain certain dates uh right. you know, may 28th uh, uh you know certain dates uh, certain locations as you, you you travel around the city and and you remember just some horrible incidences that take uh place uh you know that one in particular i mean do dates do stick with me november 14 1984 lorraine martelli gets carjacked. We didn't even have that expression then by the Rodriguez brothers at Fifth and Broadway. As she was driving home to North Denver or actually Arvada to take care of her aged and infirm mother, Lorraine Martelli, who went to North High School with my Uncle Mel, Mm -hmm. a blessed memory. But, you know, that crime, it had to be particularly terrible when you realized that the murder weapon had belonged to a Denver police sergeant, Dan Politica. Correct. I've talked about that on this podcast. And at first, it was put out that the weapon was an AR-15, and Politica told me under oath that he was misled by Denver police. And I, I would have to believe that right after you, you got Michael Close and had the uh, weapon with its serial number, you realized that it belonged to one of your own. Uh, who had been patrolling on the George Floyd protests. I don't know if you realized all that, but I I just wondered because the family felt like they weren't told this straight skinny about the gun belonging to the Denver police sergeant until much later. You have so many people working under you, but do you know anything about that? Uh, You know, um, uh, first, first, you know, I I guess we got to start with... uh, uh, you know the beautiful life that was taken uh, from us, and uh, the Bella, injuries. I've dedicated podcast to her. Isabella Thales was just an amazing human being, cut down at 21 years old, while she and her beloved Darian Simon were walking their dog in the ballpark area of Denver. This guy who's tweaking on drugs, who's having a mental breakdown, has access to an AK-47 that he 
either took or stole from a Denver police sergeant, Dan Politica, and he invents a dispute and starts shooting at these people. And thank God Darian survived and testified. I was there when he did. And there, the perpetrator will be behind bars forever. It took a while because of the pandemic, but there's just that little bad taste. Like, did Denver mislead us about who the weapon belonged to? Because if it would have been found out that these Beautiful people of color had been shot by a white guy who got a gun from another white guy. It just maybe downtown Denver would have been in further trouble. I don't know. This is just stuff that the families and I have been wondering about. And you were on the inside. Well, I I think uh, you've been very close to uh, the family, and in particular one side of the family, and I've been close to another part of uh, the family. Well, I know Josh Salas pretty well, too, and Anna. Yes. Maybe you know Anna better than I do. Yes. Yeah, I I would. uh, But but she publicly expressed being disturbed about the late revelations about that. So you know. Right. And so so, uh, not making uh, excuses uh, in any way, shape or, or form. And and actually, it dovetails into part of our conversation, the Second Amendment, right? We don't, uh, that, that gun was not issued to the police officer, the police sergeant. That wasn't a, you know, something that the DPD would have had serial numbers on. He had a on. side gun business, is, is how he acquired it. Okay. It, uh, right. And I'm not going to, you know, uh, Tyrant Arms is what he named it. Right. I am, uh, again, so, um, the the situation uh, unfolded. Yes, I, I personally uh, responded to to that situation. It was a an active shooter uh, situation that we put uh, you know the entire area, uh, eight blocks, ten blocks, that entire area in the ballpark park neighborhood on on lockdown. We thought that uh, the suspect may still be uh, in the area. Right. And it took a a long protracted response in order to uh, try to keep uh, the remaining folks safe, and it wasn't until later on that we uh, learned that the person was in Jefferson County, if I remember correctly, stopped by uh, Jeffco uh, yes. deputies, and he was armed with uh, a few guns, if I if I sort of remember you are correct. uh, correctly, right? It wasn't until later on, we, we wouldn't have known that, that the gun, you know, at, at that time, a, an agency is not going to know what the personal weapons of an officer is. Uh, you know, if, if Paul Pazin has... Uh, a duty weapon, and let's say I have a shotgun, an AR-15, an AK-47 that's personal, the department is not going to have a record of my personal firearms. Uh, that that that's not how. But a national database, well, right, right. And again, we you know again we're not. <laughs> I, I don't. But you have access to that in a crime of this kind. We knew once uh, the person came forward saying, "Hey, I know that person," and I and a weapon is missing. And so we conducted uh, an investigation, and as soon as uh, we determined that that, uh, that that was the likely source, then we revealed that information. I just, uh, I, I appreciate you talking about anything. Zero restrictions on our conversation, and I think that you and I want the same thing. We have kids about the same age. We want a bright future for them. Would you recommend your kids go on law enforcement? At this point, um, well, I, I my guess is that uh, you would uh, do the same. I mean, I encourage my uh, sons, uh, my three sons, to follow their heart and and do what uh, excites them, do uh, what they're passionate about, and uh, I would support them if they chose law enforcement. I would 
support them if they chose the fire department, or I would even support them if they chose to become a lawyer. Uh, so uh, I believe what if they became a public defender. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> it's we need those too. We do. Um, I, I'm sure your kids are fine, but I'm just looking at the video of you 10 years ago, and you were so gung-ho. It's the greatest profession in the world. Yes. It's just tough, and it must be tough to recruit. Do you have to be a perfect specimen to be on the force? Who, Who is on the force now? I, I would imagine that a lot of people can't pass the background test. Um, well, the, uh, the, you know, what we were looking for is, uh, you know, people with a, a big heart who cared about their community and all the rest, uh, you can get figured out. All nice. the rest comes to, to training. And, um, is it more difficult? Yes. Uh, most of the academy classes in the last year and a half, two years have, uh, have been half full. So, uh, as we go back to, to 95 and 96 or 94, uh, together and, and, uh, you know, when I took the test, both tests, there were, thousands upon thousands of folks right. who wanted to do this job and um we don't have that same situation there's fewer and fewer folks because they recognize some of the scrutiny that's out there uh some of the danger uh that's involved and what uh i would hope for is yes we hold individuals accountable for their individual actions um but we also support people uh for doing difficult work and I know we're getting closer to the end here, but uh, we should never paint with a, a broad brush uh, on these situations. We can't say that uh, because a horrible tragedy, uh, because a crime, uh, a crime that the persons were convicted for happened in, in Minneapolis or in uh, something, you know, tragedy happened in Louisville or Aurora or where, wherever, um, that a profession is bad. And unfortunately, we have painted with a broad brush. So there's a very famous case here in, in Colorado. Uh, there was a truck driver uh, coming down uh, I-70, the mountains, right? Uh, he's driving at a high rate of speed, uh, brakes fail, who, who knows uh, what the situation uh, ultimately was on I-70. But he uh, comes upon uh, a bunch of traffic there, uh, horrible crash, and four people lose their life. We're, we're all very uh, familiar with that situation. Um, afterward, you didn't see people running around with cardboard signs saying defund the trucking industry, right? We didn't say all truck drivers uh, are bad. Uh, Although that was apparently a bad trucking company out of yep. Texas, and yep. they should be pursued. Exactly. And that's where civil lawyers should the, come in and the sue The company their ads, and right. the individual should be held accountable, yes. but you shouldn't sit here and say all truck drivers are horrible right. hu human beings. And, and, and you can put this in the Google machine, um, how many people do you think uh, unjustly lose their life uh, in the United States as a result? of truck drivers and, and these types of, of accidents. 4,000 persons lose their life per year mm -hmm. as a result of these types of, of situations. Uh, when we're talking about law enforcement uh, encounters, and then you'd have to really narrow that down to just and unjust uh, situation, a fraction uh, of this. So uh, I know that um, these are horrible analogies because people have lost their life uh, as a result of, of this. Uh, but 
The point is we don't paint with a broad brush. We should never paint with a broad brush. We should have learned our lessons when it comes to race, gender, sexual orientation, uh, that you don't paint with a broad brush, that you don't uh, treat people uh, based on uh, something other than the the. the content of their character and who they are as individuals. And when somebody steps out of line, whether that's a a violent repeat offender or an officer, then you hold that person accountable. You do not throw the baby out with the bathwater. Seems to me that you have a lot of opportunities ahead of you. At 52, you are a young man. Whatever your family situation is, it will change in a relatively short amount of time. Do you have aspirations? Uh, if the right mayoral candidate came around, would you be reinterested in your old job? Would you like to move on to any other city? It's like I grew up in Denver, you know, to make a big splash in Omaha or Chicago. It's like, who cares? Although my parents are gone now, I suppose I could reevaluate. But would you be interested in being cheap in a bigger city? Uh, great question, and and I'll give you a very straightforward answer. Uh, no, um, I love this city. I love this state. Uh, I want to see things fixed, and I believe that uh, if we set aside some of the, uh, the, the the personal agendas that have been advanced uh, here, the reluctancy to uh, change course, the double down on on some of the the bad decisions, if we just say wait. Here's what research data and evidence is saying. Let's get this fixed. That's what I want to see. And yes, I've had opportunities to go to uh, other cities, very desirable cities uh, before. And um, I I love this city. And so I don't need bad job opportunities. Yes. Um, But I don't I don't I don't want to go somewhere else. Uh, I would prefer to actually my my perfect answer uh my my dream would be uh to to stay behind the scenes and uh you know be part of a team that says hey here's what the tweaks could be to get us to be the remarkably safe city that we used to enjoy here's what the tweaks need to be to get us to the remarkably safe state that we used to be to do it in a fair and just way and you never see or hear from me uh again and that i just uh live my best life but make a positive impact that would be the ideal situation uh from my perspective and i want to you know share what has been learned i'm proud of uh the effort the, the, the STAR program, Outreach Case Coordinators, the Continuum of Care model, the uh, FAST team, Firearms uh, Assault Shoot team, the non-fatal team that I talked about, our uh, reintegration uh, program. These are things that have been replicated across the country. These are things that have been replicated. I presented uh, this to, to uh, the Scottish National Police on uh, the STAR program uh, to three cities in, in Canada. Uh, I think I've made a, a positive impact in some of these uh, other places by trying to create these these innovations uh, that uh, help advance uh, the profession. Um, but I would love it if we could uh, you know, truly have that remarkably safe, vibrant city that we were all so proud of, the beautiful city that uh, we love, the state. Uh, where we can get uh, below the national average in violent crime. We're, we're number one in the country in auto theft. We're number two in the country in property crime. We're number four in total crime. That is embarrassing. And beyond embarrassing, those are 
individual lives that have been lost. Those are individual people that have been harmed. And unfortunately, we have politicians that just double down on these uh, efforts without trying to get them fixed. Um, politics. You, a mayoral election is coming up. Some of the candidates are way to the left, which may get them elected in Denver, Colorado. Do you have concerns in that regard? Uh you know, uh, my my concerns are that uh, we should have individuals that make uh, decisions based on critical thinking skills, based on common sense, based on common good, not based on political ideology. I think that uh, most folks in the country are more towards the middle, uh, that they that we all want the same thing, right? We, we all want to live, work, and play in a community that we feel safe. We all want to be able to raise our family and create greater opportunity for uh, the next generation. Uh, that's something that is, that is common good. That's something that's common to all of us. And instead of uh, some of the, uh, the the ideology that that segments us, that's based on ident- identity politics, that uh, you know tries to divide us. We should focus on what unites us, and that's what I'm hoping that we can find uh, candidates that are uh, more focused on the greater good than um, you know continuing to divide continuing to focus on identity politics, uh, continuing to double down on bad policies without uh, any research. Do you want to name names? <laughs> Absolutely Lisa not. Lisa Calderon, uh, she I, tweeted against you that that had to feel crappy. Uh, I, I wouldn't say that. Uh, you know, I've known Lisa for for at least a decade. Uh, I've known many of the candidates for uh, a long time. Does and anybody impress you? Who would you put at the top tier? Who do you think might win? Well, I, I, you know, two separate things uh, there. I'm, I'm still hoping for, uh, you know, a good, strong candidate that can uh, really uh, lead from uh, that middle uh, balanced perspective. I think that that's what we are lacking that uh, has the courage to say, hey, wait a minute, um, this isn't working and, and we need to do some things uh, differently. But uh, from my perspective, we need a city that actually works, right? I live in Denver. Uh, Wednesday's my trash day. I have no idea if my trash is going to get picked up on, on uh, trash day. Uh, there are times it's uh, out there uh, on Thursday. There's times it's out there on Friday. There's times that the recycle bin gets picked up and the trash is left. Uh, there's times it's the opposite. Um, and you know, how was the ice on your street the last three weeks? Uh, still still bumping around. Um, same with uh, dialing 911. When, when somebody's in a uh, emergency, that phone call needs to be answered right away. Same with 311. Uh, you know, I have a, a close friend who has a, a piece of property in Denver and just wanted to put a little home uh, there in southwest Denver. The permitting process took more than a year. You tell me what has changed over the last year. Now, this this family, this 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 uh, uh, husband and wife, um, they're worried that you know, with the cost mm-hmm. of uh, commodities of wood sure. uh, labor, that that it's not even worth it. So they're hopeful that they can just sell the property and not lose money, but. That is unconscionable that that it takes more than a year for permitting process, that it takes uh, that, that 
the basic services. Cities gotta work. A city's gotta work. Right. Period. And do, then do that the first. permitting department has to be accountable. And I think when it comes to crime, every part of it has to do their job. The police have to do their job. The prosecutors have to do their job. The judges have to do a good job. The jails have to do a good job. And you have to get all of that right in order to have a chance at having a safe society. Correct? Couldn't put it better. Uh, You you took the words out of my mouth. We need to get in balance. And sort of stay in your own lane, right? If you're the cops, I mean, I don't know. Uh, I, I just think that if you get too involved in social service projects, You've got enough to do as a cop, right? Let the social workers do. That's why the STAR program is so good. People stay in their own lanes, right? Could not agree more. Could not agree more. Uh, We we can fix this. It can be fixed. Uh, Unfortunately, I am very concerned that uh, that type of of narrative is, is... going to uh you know continue to put in place decision makers that are more focused on some of these issues that divide us instead of real solutions uh we need people that are willing to make those tough decisions that can look at things with a critical eye that that can uh rely on what has worked uh historically uh what the data the evidence what other countries what other cities are doing well uh you know quickly there are some cities Uh, in the United States that are doing well on some of these tough issues. We're so focused on replicating what is being done in Seattle, Portland, and San Francisco that we're not paying attention that Miami has record low crimes. Uh, They have uh, a very high citizen satisfaction rate over there, very low homelessness. And we all attribute, well, homelessness is directly tied to cost of, uh, of housing. Are you going to tell me that it's more expensive in Denver for a, a one-bedroom apartment than it is in Miami? Mm-hmm. Seriously? Uh, you know, Tampa, Fresno, Dallas, there's places that are doing well that are, are making those tough decisions and not doing the warm and fuzzy, oh, well, it feels good to do this approach. Well, look at what really works. How about we do that? Um, and, uh, and that's what I'm hopeful for. I think you're looking for a call from Jared Polis or the next mayor of Denver saying, hey, Paul Pazin, you've got a lot of energy. You've got a lot of great ideas. Come to work for me and see if we can fix this. Is that the kind of call you want to get? I'd be happy to to share uh, input with anybody and everybody. I I think there's different ways to get that information uh, out. Um, I am working on a textbook, and I think one of the chapters will be very specific on solutions. I, I think we do have some groups that can uh, help us uh, with that. So uh, happy that uh, be able to contribute in, in those types of, of ways to, to point uh, folks in a direction uh, that may, uh, you know, do this. I, we, we all want the same thing. I, uh, this is not trying to overcorrect in the other direction. We need a balanced approach that's fair and just, that keeps uh, our community safe, that keeps us vibrant, that keeps jobs coming 
coming uh, in so that way people can uh, pull themselves up by their bootstraps and, and leave a better life for their next uh, generation and generations to come uh, behind them. We all want the same thing, but unfortunately, we just are more focused on uh, the things that divide us than the things that unite us. And ultimately, we will uh, get there. It's just at what cost and how long that takes. I can see that you will continue to make a contribution. Thank you for making a major contribution to my podcast. This is the definitive Paul Pazin interview. What would your grandma Lola say should be the next chapter of your life? More public service, right? Uh, you know, you're you're probably right. Um, I do need to just take a break and focus on my family. For the last 33 years, I have uh, almost taken them for granted. And thank goodness I have a, a wife of a little more than 30 years that is put up with, uh, you know, these, these efforts of, of putting other people first. And uh, Can I say one other thing she put up with is the constant risk that a Denver police officer wife has to face. I want to thank you for that because you've led a life of considerable danger, putting your life on the line, your time on the line for people in the public who might never appreciate that. I do. Your sacrifice has been tremendous, and your grandma Lola would be proud of you. Thank you. I mean, uh, your wife, I bet she was nervous every time you left the house, right? Uh, you know, she's she's pretty tough. Uh, an immigrant, uh, somebody who, who migrated to this country legally, uh, her and her entire family, and it was a, a very difficult and, and uh, cumbersome You're process. You're kind of tearing up this where I wish I had TV. That's cool. And, so, and the other thing I want to say about you that I didn't appreciate is your Hispanic roots, and you are a person of color, and whatever that means in this day and age. But I imagine, given that you could pass for whatever, Italian, maybe you could even be Jewish, who knows? But I don't know what you may have heard. You may hear things that they don't realize you're Latino. And one of the sad things about modern society, and I was here for forced desegregation and race riots at GW where I went back in the early 70s, so I've seen it come and go, but I, I I just think that in modern times there's more racism and anti-Semitism than I ever thought was possible in America or Denver or Colorado. You're nodding your head. Has it surprised you too? It has surprised me, um, and I'm so glad that you're verbalizing this. Um, I thought that we have learned these lessons. Right. I thought that we were much better than this as a society. I thought we had learned not to treat people differently based on their race, their gender, their sexual orientation. And now uh, that's exactly what we're doing. We're fighting bias with bias. How does that make sense? I mean, I feel like I'm in bizarro land that we are going to, uh, in the sake of trying to uh, right a wrong in the past, that we're going to be uh, discriminatory. That's not the way that it should be. We're the land of opportunity, and we should uh, create those opportunities for everyone. But it doesn't mean that we hold other people back. And um, I think that it's going to it's a it's a long, painful lesson that our society is is in the midst of, and it's going to take uh, you know some reflection to figure out. Wait. Uh, 
fighting bias with bias is never good. Treating uh, people differently and focusing on the the things that we are different uh, is not good. We should focus on what unites us and in the end of the day, we all want the same thing, and it doesn't matter race, religion, color. But, but, but not everybody. Like right now on trial are the Proud Boys, okay, for seditious conspiracy. They're a bunch of bigots and women haters, all right? The Oath Keepers, Stuart Rhodes, he already got convicted, and it got a lot of law enforcement involved with them. That's part of a problem, right? Even. We and identify so, the problems and right. we fix them, uh, yes. but we don't paint with a broad brush. Uh, and and that's uh, what needs uh, individuals need to be held accountable for their individual actions. And, and I think so at the highest level. And I'm just going to end on this because it occurs to me you have a variety of perspectives. I brought up the Proud Boys and the, the Oath Keepers, but 140 peace officers got assaulted on January 6th. Two or three of them committed suicide. Sicknick had a stroke the next day after being hit with bear spray. How did that affect you? January 6th, that happened while you were chief of police of Denver. I couldn't believe it. I'm still reeling from it. I don't think our rule of law and law enforcement system will be quite right until everybody's held accountable for that. How do you feel? I couldn't agree more with you. Uh, everybody should be held accountable for uh, their illegal behavior on January 6th. Just as uh, we had 81 officers in Denver injured during mm -hmm. the uh, the challenges that we saw, 81 officers injured in, in five days. Uh, some of them will never return to work. Some of them have been medically retired mm -hmm. as a result uh, of their injuries. And just like Every person that was involved in criminal behavior on January 6th should be held accountable. So should the individuals that uh, committed crimes and injured our police officers. So should uh, any officer that violated the law or violated policy should be held accountable. Individuals should be held accountable, and we shouldn't then lump people together and say, uh, you know, the officers as a right. group in uh, a city, in a state, or in a country are bad as a result of individual actions. We don't do that with any other uh, profession. We don't do that in the medical field, in the education field. We don't do that with truck drivers. Individuals should be held accountable for their actions uh, to the fullest uh, extent, and uh, we shouldn't then create a bias or prejudice towards an individual based on race, gender, sexual orientation, uh, religion. We shouldn't do it based on their profession. We should treat people as people, as individuals right. on the merits uh, of their character. And uh, that is what I, I cannot believe that, that we're making a slide as a society that it's uh, trying to focus on what divides us instead of what unites us. And, and that, that is gets not us good. back to certain politicians who want to stir it up and certain media that mm -hmm. want to stir it up. I appreciate you being part of my media. Chief Pazin, I think you are going to do remarkable things. Thank you for a great couple of hours. Craig, thank you. It was uh, an honor to be here uh, in studio and uh, appreciate it. It's great to see you. Keep up the good work. Uh, keep trying to get the word out there. And uh, thank you. Thank you. Paul Payson, everybody. 
Now, during the pandemic and otherwise, a lot of people have so much affection for their pets. That must come up all the time. What's going to happen to Scruffy? What can you tell us about that, Michael Bailey? What you can do is create a pet trust in Colorado. You put money into trust, and then that money is available and earmarked to care for the dog. And it can last the lifetime of the dog or 21 years, whichever is shorter. And then when the time frame for the trust is up, you can dictate who gets whatever leftover money or I have several clients who will leave it to some sort of animal shelter or animal rescue to be able to care for other animals. How cool is that? You can go to Mike Bailey's office and he has offices all over and you could meet at your home, whatever. I love the way you practice law. You've kept it going for a long time. Tell everybody how they can make you their lawyer. So my phone number is 720-394-6887. And again, that's 720-394-6887. They can call me or they can go online to mobileestateplanning.com. And there's a link there where you can schedule an appointment with me. Okay, here's the thing. You've been hurt. Maybe, God forbid, someone's been killed. You don't know what to do. If it happened in Colorado, please get a hold of me. Check out my website, craigscoloradolaw.com. Craigscoloradolaw.com because I have four decades of experience. Sadly, I've helped a lot of people who have been hurt terribly through no fault of their own. 303-734-7156. Please call Craig, Craig Silverman, a voice for victims, 303-734-7156. Hey, did I tell you that was a great show? First of all, the troubadour Dave Gunders with his song, Do What I Say, and then Paul Pazin, he sat with me and he talked for hours. He has a lot of ideas. He's far from through at 52. I think he could contribute to helping to solve our crime problem because Colorado's great, but we can't have number one in car theft. That's ridiculous. There are solutions. We'll keep covering this and so much more. Thanks for tuning in. Tell a friend. It'd be nice if they subscribed. Five-star reviews are fantastic. Our numbers are growing. Great guests week after week. See you next Saturday. Thank you. Thank you for listening. Tune in live every Saturday morning, 9 to noon, Mountain Time. Visit thecraigsilvermanshow.com for the podcast, blog, and more. Be sure to subscribe on all major podcasting platforms to be updated when new episodes are available. This has been The Craig Silverman Show.